Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today I have an extra special treat for you guys. It's something I've been looking forward to for a long time now. Um, Dr. Joseph Bergeron is on the show. Hi, Joe. Hello. How are you, Dale? I'm very well. Thanks for being here. Pleasure and, to be with you. And awesome. And kind of helping me out here, I have my Christian co-host, Daniel Lowry. Hey, Daniel. Hey, Dale. Thanks for having me on again. No problem. Welcome back. You always do a great job as a co-host there. So awesome. So, so yeah, today um, we're talking about, obviously, Dr. Bergeron here, he he is an expert in the medical field and forensics and anatomy and that sort of thing. So I want to get his medical expertise on the crucifixion of Jesus and even a little bit as to how that relates to the evidence from the Shroud of Turin as well. Um, so just before we get into the actual show itself, I want to turn it straight over to my guest to introduce us as to who you are exactly, where what your background is, and um, yeah, maybe a little bit about your faith journey, if you don't mind as well. Oh, uh, I, I became a serious Christian uh, in the 1970s. You all weren't around then, but that was, those were the days of the Jesus movement when there was a pretty expansive revival in the United States and elsewhere. So I was affected by that. Um, and actually was in ministry for a, a few years in my young life. And so that's, I guess I have enough biblical background that I can look at the uh, biblical descriptions of Jesus in the context and then having become a physician. Uh, <clears throat> now, I think 25 years in practice post-residency training. Um, so it, I have a dual vantage point when I look at these things. Uh, I'm a practicing physician still. Uh, and I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation. How I fell into doing this is, is quite by accident. I was asked to give a lecture at uh, Indiana University. I live in Indiana in the United States. And uh, <clears throat> uh, so I presented what physician writers had, uh, had said about Jesus' execution. And then a pathologist uh, came up to me and asked me to or that I should consider writing it for submission to a publication to a medical journal, which is a daunting task, uh, which nobody wants to do. It's it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, but um, but I took that as an assignment from the Lord, and I, I worked on that for a couple of years and eventually got it published with some difficulty. I'm, I'm a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation, and uh, how this kind of falls into the way I think about things is that I've done a lot of uh, 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 courtroom depositions. Um, there's only two of you interviewing me today. One of my court depositions, I had six attorneys interviewing me, so so I, I can handle the both of you. Uh, <laughs> but when I prepared the book, it was similar in in style or uh, a profile to how I would uh, prepare a report for submission uh, in in a courtroom deposition. Uh, and so it's it's really the book is intended to present the story to someone who really didn't know anything about it. Target audience is uh, college students, college graduates, uh, and uh, people that kind of really maybe didn't know anything about Jesus or couldn't talk about it. In in education and profession, I've known some really really intelligent people that knew absolutely nothing about Jesus, and so uh, that just didn't that seemed criminal. It shouldn't be that way. So that's what the book is for. Uh, and you you know, you guys know that uh, young people that grow up in church uh, 
uh, 60 to 80% of them abandon their faith when they go to the university, often within the first year. Do you think about that? Uh, that that's an epidemic. <clears throat> if it was the bubonic plague or something else, you'd padlock, you'd quarantine the university, nobody'd get in. And <laughs> yeah. But we're thinking about the spiritual health of our young people. And so that's really what I wanted to say with the book and to speak to, to give a, give an argument for why we believe what we believe and why it makes sense, at least from a medical standpoint. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, it's, it's so true what you say about universities. I, I feel like I was a bit of a weirdo. Like for me, it wasn't until after I graduated, then I started getting my doubts in my 20s. So I'm a bit of an oddball, but yeah, for sure, most of them in university. Well, I, respect, I respect people that study. Uh, I mean, that's important. Um, but then ultimately, we have to come to a point where we make a step of faith. Yeah. But we want to remove the obstacles and defend what we believe and why we believe it. And that's that's the intent of the writing. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, with that said, um, I want to get straight into the topic. So obviously, the first thing to establish is, okay, well, look, how do, how the heck do we even know that Jesus actually died by crucifixion, uh, crucifixion from a historical perspective? What's some of the evidence for that? Uh, I think... I think the best historical evidence is stuff that's outside the Bible. And you guys, I'm sure, know about this. I, I have it in my in my book. Uh, so I thought I'd read it to you. The uh, Cornelius Tacitus was a, a Roman senator. He was an orator, and he wrote a history called the, the Annals. He was not a Christian, had no favorable view of, of uh, Christians. But he didn't have a favorable view of Nero either, it seems like, because he documented that Nero blamed Christians for the fire in Rome. And people say that Nero laughed watching the Rome burn. Uh, he was a bad player by, by every record of him. But uh, Tacitus wrote, Nero fastened the guilt and have inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. And you, you understand that, that any religion external to Roman religions was illegal. They would have viewed Christians as an illegal religion and weird heretics for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Um, uh, Christus or Christ, uh, from whom they uh, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty. The extreme penalty, the the uh, 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 summa supplicum, was crucifixion. That's what he said. It, that's what he's writing about during the reign of Tiberius, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So this is a secular historian saying Jesus was a historical figure. His followers had uh, what he calls the most mischievous superstition, could only mean that they're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And thus, check for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the source of the evil, and again, they thought it was evil uh, to have these kind of weird religious beliefs, again broke out, even in Rome, where all things uh, hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest uh, was first made of all who pleaded guilty, then upon their information an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, which 
Nero enjoyed, but as hated against as hatred against mankind. So they hated those. They hated Christians. That's obvious from history, right? Um, not uh, so. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. That's the so-called Roman candle that Nero would light his gardens uh, in the evening by uh, impaling Christians and lighting their bodies on fire. So, so he was a bad guy. Yeah. yeah. But that's a, that's a secular, unfavorable description of Christians and Jesus. You can't get better history than that. And, you know, Rome was a, an enormous uh, government all over the Mediterranean world. It had a developed legal system, uh, record-keeping system. Um, uh, Justin Martyr wrote in his first apology, he wrote to uh, the emperor, Antonius Pius, he was trying to get him to say, look, Christians are nice people, stop doing bad things to them. And he wanted uh, the emperor to look up in the history of uh, Pilate's governance to find out what he was telling was true. And he referenced a, a writing called the Acts of, uh, of uh, Pontius Pilate. Now that has not survived a current time, but here you have, uh, Justin Martyr was extremely courageous in my view, uh, to, to step up to the emperor and say, go look it up for yourself, emperor. These people, this really happened and these are nice people, stop burning them up and doing bad things to them. So those are things external to the Bible. Now, you know, when, so I was at a meeting one time and I said, you could, you could throw the Bible out the window and, and uh, know that Jesus was crucified. And all the preachers in the room gasped, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but there are things you can know about Jesus without looking at the Bible at all. And uh, that's, that's, that's one of them. Um, so, yeah. And, and then when you look at the biblical accounts of Jesus' execution, uh, there's no reason to contest any of that. I mean, Roman crucifixion practices were well known and they're, he, you know, there are other descriptions of crucifixion, Eusebius for one, but the, the crucifixion descriptions we have in the gospels, uh, you know, they're accurate. And there's no reason they have historical significance on their own. <clears throat> Even if someone chooses not to believe in the resurrection, you can't really toss out the biblical descriptions of Jesus' execution as invalid because, because they are. They're consistent with known history. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think it's amazing. Like, we have this double warrant, right? When, if you, you don't like the Bible, great. You've got secular historians like Tacitus that you mentioned that prove it. If you don't think the uh, secular historians, you want to go to the biblical text, we've got equal great historical evidence that biblical scholars have used to establish that. Oh, Daniel, yes. do you want to say something or? No? Okay, I thought you, I thought you signaled there. So no, right. I, got, I got nothing to add. I think uh, you summed it up well, Dale. All right, cool. All right, well, okay. So obviously I want to kind of turn, turn things to your expertise now as a medical expert and Okay, great. So we, we know historically Jesus was crucified, um, but how do we uh, look at that from a medical perspective? What would have happened to Jesus, you know, from the time he was arrested um, up until his crucifixion? And what would that have looked like from a medical perspective, what he went through? 
Jesus' Last Supper was a Passover Seder. He probably left about, we can estimate, 9 p.m. and went to the garden to pray. Uh, it's it's there that he asked his disciples to uh, pray with him, which they couldn't. They fell asleep. They had a large meal, you know, uh, but uh, they couldn't pray with him. But Jesus said, uh, my soul is in agony to the point of death. He said, I feel like I'm dying. I'm going to die right now. That's what I feel like. Jesus understood what was happening. And that's where he said, uh, where the uh, Luke tells us that he sweat drops of blood. And that that's a really weird description. I never really got that for a long time until I uh, started studying and understand that there is a, a observed occurrence called hematidrosis, where uh, people do uh, sweat blood. Uh, there are it's so rare that it's not well understood. Uh, there have been a couple cases that have been well studied uh, and have various descriptions on, uh, in terms of wh what biopsies look like and so forth. Uh, but we know that it occurs. Now, uh, the type of hematidrosis that Jesus experienced is called uh, single episode psychogenic hematidrosis. Uh, so there are some reports in literature of people that had recurrences of that that sort of phenomenon. But with Jesus, it was one time. And in the uh, Journal of Internal Medicine, there's a uh, uh, a uh, his, history of, of case review uh, by uh, authors uh, Holabeck that uh, describe a number of cases, but this, the single episode psychogenic cases are, are just a handful, seven or eight, and they're almost always immediately before execution. And so Luke, uh, being a physician, probably thought that was significant. He's the only one that uh, included that. So he, Jesus didn't lose a lot of blood there, but it, it speaks to his emotional uh, tenor at the moment that that he was really in a rough shape. Then he's arrested. Then he's uh, taken to the home of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Joseph Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time. Now, the the high priest lived in it's felt it's archaeological archaeologists tell me that it was a multi-generational mansion so he, he, uh, jesus is has, is on trial there with annas and some of the members of the sanhedrin who pronounce him guilty this is where he receives his first beating uh, this is where they throw a blanket over him beat him up say if you're the christ tell us who's punching you right now um, so he's beaten up there and uh, the Jews had lost uh, capital authority by that time. They couldn't execute somebody, but they had full liberty with corporal punishment, so they could beat him up. And you you know the story that uh, uh, Caiaphas says to him, tell us plainly, are, are you the Christ and the Son of God? And, he, and Jesus says, you are going to see me sitting by God the Father and coming in clouds. And... They, they, of course, were all Hebrew scholars. They knew exactly what he was talking about. It was a, a, a reference to uh, Psalm 110, which is a Messianic prophecy, uh, which is uh, God or Hashem says to the Lord God, Adonai, sit at my right hand. So that's kind of an oblique reference to the uh, Trinity. Um, but they just kind of went into rage, started tearing their clothes. He's, he needs to be killed. He's, it's, this is blasphemy. And and uh, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy uh through the 19 or 24, but blasphemy is punishable by death. Uh, 
So, <clears throat> but they can't do it. So they, and they don't want to do it anyway, because the crowd will go, go nuts and, and, and uh, blame them for killing someone who was enormously popular at the time. So they take him to the Romans. Um, so they get to Pontius Pilate early in the morning, let's say 6 a.m. Uh, Pontius Pilate says, yeah, you know, I don't know. You're from Galilee. Let's send you over to Herod Antipas. He's, he goes to Herod Antipas. They put a purple robe on him, send him back to Pontius Pilate. Uh, when he gets to Pontius Pilate, that's where a, a company of, of soldiers, one of the Gospels says, beat him. So they stick a rod in his hand, they put a crown of thorns on his head, and they beat him up again, beating number two. Then, uh, then he's scourged. Now, scourging was uh, with a whip with uh, leather strips with dumbbell pieces of lead sewn into the end of them. That's uh, called a flagrum or flagellum. Uh, and they would have been beaten all over the body. Uh, and that could be particularly severe. To the point Eusebius said that that it would expose uh, our veins and arteries, uh, internal organs, all that sort of thing. So uh, the uh, Roman philosopher Suetonus said people uh, that were crucified had many reasons to die before getting to the cross. And, uh, you know, that's true. Now, by the time Jesus has to walk to the execution site, uh, and he would be expected to carry the um, the horizontal section of the cross to the execution site. He can't do it. So he's stumbling. They have to recruit Simon of Cyrene to carry that for him because the Romans aren't going to carry it. And so uh, that's our first indication that Jesus is, is probably progressing into shock at that time because, uh, you know, the initial symptoms of shock would be dizziness, lightheadedness, uh, feeling sweaty, clammy, confused, that kind of stuff. And uh, so then he gets to the execution site, and uh, Jesus walked about uh, 3.2 kilometers, plus or minus, depending on which crucifixion site you consider to be the valid one. And there are a couple that archaeologists consider. So that gets you to the cross. Now, then uh the way people were crucified uh they would be nailed most of the time if nails if were not available they would tie them up but uh, princi uh principally it was nails and uh the way the hand would be nailed would be if you take your ring finger and bend it down as far as you can to touch the vertical wrist crease in your palm if you drive a nail through that spot It'll go through your wrist bones and withstand 240 pounds of extraction force. How do we know that? Uh, Dr. Barbet, uh, who wrote a really famous book, The Doctorate at Calvary, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, was a surgeon, and he took arms that unfortunately had to be amputated and did experiments on them. And he, he drove nails through them. And he, he found that if you put one through the middle of the palm, it would pull out with 100 pounds of extraction force. That wouldn't hold somebody up there. But going through the wrist bones, the way that I just described, it would go through the wrist bones without fracturing them and withstand 240 pounds of extraction force, which would be a stable fixation. Uh, now, when you do that and you go through that part of the wrist, uh, then you're either going to transect or macerate the median nerve that's the nerve that's pinched with uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. 
And what that, I, I don't know what it would feel like. I could just speculate and say, it would feel like lightning shooting up your arm. It would be enormously painful. Um, that's how the hands were nailed. Then the Roman crucifixion team that had already been working on him, uh, beating him and so forth, would lift the uh, horizontal section and place it on the vertical section of the cross, uh, which would be stationary in the ground, and they would fasten it with a mortise and tenon coupling. Uh, so you can understand that the, first off, you know, they, they may have done a lot of crucifixions on a particular day. Uh, during the siege of Jerusalem, uh, Josephus said they would crucify up to 500 people in a day, so that there wasn't enough wood to make crosses, according to Josephus. So it had to be expeditious, uh, utility had to rule the day. They weren't going to use elaborate uh, carpentry work, they were going to use simple carpentry, a mortise and tenon coupling on a stable fixation of the vertical section of the cross, and that's called the Tau cross, which is what was used in, in, in Jesus' time. Uh, and if you can get the image of that, the crucifixion victim is essentially eye to eye with his executioners when he's on the cross. The feet would then be nailed to the vertical section of the cross. Uh, and the we don't know exactly how that was done, except that we, only, we have three crucifixion finds archeologically. And in those, the uh, nail was driven laterally or from the side through the heel bone or the calcaneus. That's the bone you stand on if you're walking on your heels. And then it was fixed to the to either the side or the front of the cross. Uh, it's, it's Again, it's hard to know exactly what they did, but the remains that we have, the nail was through the heel. Um, and so uh, that got you to the cross and got you on the cross. Um, and then from there, uh, you were just going to be uh, be there until you expired. And what's peculiar about Jesus' case is that he died in, in uh, uh, six hours, we can estimate by the biblical description. Uh, the synoptic gospels say that the time of death was 3 p.m. Uh, so now that was quick because crucifixion could last for days. There are literally literary references of crucifixion lasting up to a week. Uh, and you know, that's that's a long time. Uh, Eusebius, uh, who was the bishop of Caesarea, uh, wrote that he thought that people starved to death while they were crucifying. That's what he thought the cause of death was. That was My guess would be that's a consensus of what people thought in the time. So it was a prolonged, as prolonged a death as you could possibly manage. That was it. Uh, but Jesus died in six hours. Now, the other guys that were crucified that day did not die at the same time he did. So what was going on? What was happening to Jesus? There was something happening physiologically to him that wasn't obvious to observers on the scene. That points us to something physiologically occurring in his body. And uh, I've already said that, you know, there's the, the gospel description suggests that Jesus was uh, progressing into shock, uh, more likely than not, and shock in medical language, uh, 
you know, shock means a lot of things, the sensation of electricity or being flabbergasted or whatever. But in medical language, we're talking about uh, impaired circulation and vital organs, impaired oxygen delivery. And in the context of trauma and hemorrhage, it's from decreased circulating blood volume. And Jesus had ample, you know, ample opportunity to bleed a lot on the way to the cross before he got there. And the chemical derangement that occurs in the context of shock is significant. It's not just a matter of uh, blood loss. You know, you can lose, you start to progress and in, in, you have, I think, about five uh, liters of circulating blood. If you lose 10% of that, you're going to potentially start going into shock. If you lose 40% of your circulating blood volume, your blood pressure goes to zero. But there's a, a, a cascade of chemical occurrences that that happened in that context where if you deprive your organ systems of oxygen, they start dying, which creates, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory mediators. It, it, it decreases the pH. It starts to become acidotic in the body. And um, it creates a cascade of events that even if, let's say, Let's say at hour five, you take Jesus out, off the cross, you put him in an ICU, you stabilize all of his vital signs. Still, people are going to die anyway, because the insult is so great. The, the biochemical derangement that they experience uh, is so great that even if you uh, normalize things uh, through intensive medical effort, they're still going to succumb anyway. Of course, in Jesus' time, they didn't have that. But uh, I, I'll give you an example. Sometimes people ask me, did anyone survive crucifixion? And uh, there's literary refer reference to one person surviving uh, crucifixion, and that is that uh, Josephus, who is an eyewitness of the siege of Jerusalem, uh, where again, as, uh, up to 500 people a day, according to Josephus, could be crucified. He saw three of his friends being crucified, and he was able to get a stay of execution. Three, they were taken down. One of them was nursed back to health. Two of them died anyway, because there's a point, there's a threshold beyond which the body cannot tolerate a certain level of insult before it's going to die, no matter what you do to it. Uh, so there was a physiologic process occurring in Jesus's body that caused him to die much faster than what would be expected to the point that Pontius Pilate was surprised when Joseph of Arimathea requested Jesus' remains for burial, uh, that he had to get the centurion to verify that Jesus had died uh, before uh, his remains could be released for burial. Now, I just told you a minute ago, we only have three archaeological finds of crucifixion victims. Does that strike you peculiar? Answer me, please. Well, I suppose uh, part of the yes. question might be if we actually look at historical record where it talks about thousands of people uh, being crucified and stuff like that. It seems like uh, archaeological-wise, we should be finding more remains. Am I getting that right, uh, Dr. Bergeron? Yeah, it, I think it's really peculiar. Um, you know, at the Spartacus Rebellion in 70 BC, uh, the Romans dispatched 30,000 troops to, to put down uh, an, uh, the insurrection and they crucified 6,000 people on the Appian Way, a Roman highway from uh, Rome, 120 kilometers from Rome down through the middle of, uh, to the south of Italy. 6,000 people were crucified, and we can't find that stuff? 
the 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 reason is that the remains were left on the cross uh, to be devoured by scavenging animals. And so it would be an unusual or a rarity for the remains to be requested for burial. But anyway, yeah, I, so, I, I actually did have a quick question about that, uh, Dr. Yeah. Bergeron, um, because uh, I know um, Craig Evans talks a little bit about this in some of his works and stuff like that, about why it's so rare to actually find crucifixion victims, why we don't see a bunch of um, bodies with nails sticking out of him. And one of the hypotheses that he sort of deals with is the idea that uh, we do see crucifixion nails collected as sort of um, trinkets by more the um, uh, um economic elite in Jerusalem. So he sort of hypothesized that uh, the nails probably would have been taken out and then uh, collected or sold. Um, I'm curious, uh, just from like a forensic uh, uh, lens, uh, would a crucifixion victim, uh, if they were buried, uh, if they didn't have those physical signs from like the nails, uh, would we even be able to tell them apart from uh, a normal corpse? You may, you may not be able to if they were tied up, but most people were nailed. Uh, I would differ with that that opinion you just, at least to my reading, the nails were harvested for reuse by the Roman execution teams. And some of the nails were harvested for use in incantation by those in the dark dark magic arts. Uh, I'm not sure they were worn as, as jewelry or amulets otherwise. Oh, uh, I, that wasn't what I was trying to imply by them, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure, but but that's they were they were harvested and primarily for for reuse. Um, but uh, yeah, but but generally speaking, you should be able to detect signs of trauma. Uh, there was uh, the recent find in in uh, the UK in uh, Cambridgeshire. Let's say that right. Um, where they found uh, a nail through the heel, and that 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 uh, there were evidence of uh, fractured ribs and that sort of thing. Um, the legs were not broken, and the other find is in is in northern Italy, where there was a nail mark through the heel. Uh, the nails had been harvested for both from both of those, uh, and there were no other signs of trauma on the remains in northern Italy. The earliest find was in Jerusalem, uh, which was uh, thought to date to the early uh, first century. That victim still had a nail in the heel, as, as did the, uh, the one in the UK, the one in Italy, the nail had been harvested. Um, but uh, that, that victim, the Jerusalem find, did have the legs broken. Uh, I'm not sure there were others if there were other signs of trauma. That particular find was in an ossuary. Uh, Jewish funerary customs in the Second Temple period are well known. Uh, and what they would do, they would wrap the body in a shroud, they wash the body, uh, wrap the body in the shrouds, uh, in a sh shroud. They would first anoint the body with uh, perfumes and that sort of thing, sprinkle maybe some plants there, wrap the body. Then they would place it in, in the tomb in, in a wooden box. When the soft tissue component, when only the bones were left, then they would collect the bones and put them in an ossuary. And so the Jerusalem find was in an ossuary uh, with other uh, bones that were collected, and it was submersed in a syrupy kind of fluid with a lot of dense calcium uh, over it. So it was a little bit difficult to figure out exactly what it was at first, except you could tell there was a nail through the bone. Um, I, hang on. When you're finished with that, can I, I have a follow-up question for you when, you when you're ready. 
I was just going to say, let's see, you can see that. It's uh, blurry. I can't see the title. Uh, oh, it's because you, you're blurring your background. So I think it's treating it as a, a background thing. So it's, 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 a, it's the book is Jewish Funerary Customs, Practices and Rites in the Second Temple, period, by Rachel Hatch Lilly. She's a professor at the University of Haifa. This is an academic tome. It's really expensive. It was on Amazon the other day, it was 300 bucks, but you can get the Kindle edition for 10 bucks. Um, and what's really interesting about that book, it's just an expansive uh, document with pictures and, and well-researched if somebody's really interested in, in that sort of thing, uh, that is the definitive place to look. Uh, and what's really interesting, and she even mentions the Shroud of Turin. What do you think she talked about? She said... It, there, you know, there are people, the only thing she said about the Shroud of Turin was that there are people that think uh, you, the, the disciples put Roman coins over Jesus' eyes, or that there was some pottery fragments or something over his eyes, and she just says, didn't happen. They didn't do that. Sorry. <laughs> just remove that from your discussion. Out of, well, um, that, that, oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, out of curiosity, because I know they've they've apparently found later skulls, like the second, third century, and they have coins in them. So is that like a later practice that didn't? Uh, I don't know about that potentially, but her study is, is principally to the Second Temple period. The 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 Second Temple was completely demolished with battering rams and with the siege of Jerusalem in AD 70, you know that. And the the temple was the monetary reserve for the Jewish kingdom. Uh, billions of dollars worth of gold were taken back to Rome and used to finance the construction of the Colosseum. Gotcha. Um, so I think I got off track. Did I finish your question? Um, we were talking about jesus medical condition throughout his yeah. what one thing um i just want to interject and just ask you here is so you mentioned we have these three archaeological findings and they still have the nails in the heel type thing obviously three is a very small sample size relative to the yes. thousands and stuff. do you do you think um from what you know would the romans have had different positions to crucify like could they have nailed uh, people in different places, or would it have been standardized always through that heel type thing? Oh, in terms of the foot, I don't know, uh, and we don't know. I mean, it's it would be it would it would be it wouldn't follow correctly to try to generalize and say Jesus had nails through his heels. That's not what I'm trying to say. But those are the only finds that we have. Um, but remember the. Genesis 3.15, uh, what's called the Proto-Evangelium, where God speaks to Satan and the serpent and says, uh, the woman's offspring uh, is going to bruise your head and you're going to bruise his heel. Um, this is a peculiar statement, but maybe that pretends to how Jesus' heel or foot was nailed. Most of the time, you know, when you look at artwork, we see some kind of block of wood on the front of the cross, and then they put the feet on that and nail that. That didn't happen. There was no block of wood to nail the feet to. They were nailed directly to the cross. So if you could figure out how to 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 do that some other way than nailing it through the heel, um, I, I don't know. But again, it's about utility. If you have to crucify 500 people in a day, it's got to be quick, and you got to 
move on to the next one. So it, it's it's all about utility. So I, I don't know. Uh, in terms of different positions, yeah, Josephus uh, and Eusebius both document different positions uh, that they would nail people to the cross. And and you, you probably know that it's traditionally held that Peter was crucified upside down, uh, preaching to his executioners until he died. Okay, cool. Um, all right, cool. So um, have you, I, because we kind of interrupted you a bit, have you, do you feel you've covered everything as to what Jesus would have experienced from a medical perspective up until his death? Or is there anything else you left out or? Uh, I, I think I covered it, but I want to emphasize that Jesus died rapidly, very rapidly. Six hours, which was really quick by crucifixion, means because crucifixion was meant to last a long time, to be the most prolonged death you could possibly experience. So what killed Jesus, and what when we talk about cause of death in lay terms, but really in medical language, we're talking about the mechanism of death. The mechanism of death for Jesus was a traumatic hemorrhagic shock, uh, and everything is in the name. Trauma means injury, hemorrhage means blood loss, and shock means decreased circulating blood uh, volume in this context. And what I proposed when in my medical journal article uh, in the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, that the factors were present that Jesus could have experienced what's called a trauma-induced coagulopathy, and meaning that uh, his blood lost its ability to clot. And that that's a complication that can occur in, in trauma. The things that portend that are uh, tissue injury and bleeding. Well, Jesus is beaten all over his body you know, with lacerations and multiple beatings. Um, uh, 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 blood loss, tissue injury, hypothermia, or decreased core body temperature. And we know that it was cold that day because uh, Galileo had not invented the thermometer yet. So we don't know how cold it was. But we know it was cold because Peter's following along and he goes to stand by the fire with the temple guard that arrested Jesus because he's cold. <laughs> the Bible says it's cold. It was cold that day. And so if, if he lost his bashfulness to go stand next to the guys that arrested Jesus, and then he gets confronted. And he said, well, no, you, we saw you there. You cut off my relative's ear. We saw you there. You're the man. You got the accent. You're one of his people. And, you know, of course, he starts denying Jesus at that point. But it was so cold, you're going to risk standing by these people that could take you out and execute you also? That's pretty cold. And we know that, you know, weather studies are done, we know that it can be cold. It can get into uh, a freezing temperature range in the first week in April. That's not typical, but it can. And so we have to assume that it was in the colder the spectrum of what occurs in the first week of April in Jerusalem, and Jesus being naked on the cross, veins and arteries constricted, sweaty, that his core body temperature could have easily uh, decreased. And, uh, and so those things create the context in which uh, the complication can occur. And 
this has explanatory power in terms of a hypothesis to say it can explain why Jesus died so quickly. Also, why, uh, you know, blood flowed from his chest um, after he had died. Now, you know, uh, I think, I don't think it, you have to have a medical degree to figure out when somebody died. Would you agree with me? Yeah. <laughs> I've had the unfortunate uh, part of part of medical life is that I've had to pronounce people dead on a few occasions. It's not rocket science. Uh, and, and nowadays, I think there are some statutory requirements and certifications and things to be able to do that. But, you know, now the Roman soldiers, they came to Jesus and they found that he was dead. Do you think they're credible? course they see it all the time yeah it was their job now the other thing is you know they're going to release the body they're going to take it down why do you think they put a spear through his chest just to double check and ensure that he is dead. exactly it wasn't a coup de gras they were not trying to be nice or or shorten his suffering he was already dead so the reason was they were going to release his remains and if Roman military discipline was austere. It was severe. If you were on guard and you fell asleep, they were going to beat you to death. Uh, and we, we see in Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, which was part of the Roman Empire, when he thought that Paul and Silas had escaped, he was going to fall on the sword rather than face what was coming down the road for him. If you were on a crucifixion team and you allowed a political insurgent or capital criminal to escape, it wasn't good. You were going to die yourself. They, they knew how to deliver a death blow. They drove the spear in there to make sure, absolutely sure that there was not beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt that he was dead before they released the body. That's why they did that. So, so that's really, so what I've learned from you, it's interesting. So I, I've always heard, you know, death by crucifixion, it's by asphyxiation. And that explains why they broke the legs and stuff like that. But you're saying, no, it's, it's actually through traumatic blood loss and, and that sort of thing. That's what kills you through crucifixion. Not, do you, did you mention the asphyxiation uh, thing and why you don't think it works at all? Or? No, it didn't happen. Didn't happen. Okay, cool. It didn't, it didn't happen. But I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Um, you know where that idea came from? You probably do. I do, yeah. Yeah, it came... Let me see if you can see the book. Uh, there's a picture of a cross on it, but the title's blurred out and stuff. This is Dr. Pierre Barbet's book, A Doctor at Calvary, The Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ as Described by a Surgeon. This is where it came from. This became uh, enormously popular. And Dr. Barbet proposed the idea. Well, he didn't, he didn't, the idea didn't originate with him. Uh, it originated really with a, uh, uh, a French surgeon named Lebec and a Czechoslovakian surgeon named Heineck, who were aware of suspension torture. And uh, they questioned whether Jesus may have died that way. Now, in Barbet's book, in Appendix Number One, someone had reported to him that they had observed. Uh, they had observed suspension torture at Dachau, at the uh, concentration camp. And it was part of the Nazi penal code where they could uh, suspend someone. And in the case re recorded by Dr. Barbet, uh, the, uh, that individual 
appeared to have difficulty breathing. Um, the Nazis put weights on his feet, which almost caused him to die. They took the weights off, so he'd live a little bit longer, but he eventually died in three hours. And the description is kind of a grisly one, but it, it indicates that he died by uh, uh, asphyxiation. Suffocation is the interruption of the respiratory apparatus. Asphyxiation is the effect of op oxygen deprivation. So two different things, but one can lead to the other. And um, so Dr. Barbet thought, well, that must be how Jesus died. And then he thought, well, maybe that's why they broke the legs. Well, you know, again, now now we're now we're moving into a priori sorts of conclusions. Why did they break the leg? Well, it supports what I think. No, we don't know that. You know, the the of course the immediate effect of breaking the legs would be trauma, bleeding, and with fracturing long bones, you can have uh, fat enter the circulation marrow and fat enter the circulation, and call, cause what's called fat emboli, which can be lethal if they migrate to the heart and lungs. Um, but but we don't know. We can't assume that that's true. And then Dr. Barbet looked at the blood flow patterns on the shroud of Turin, and he thought, oh, they bifurcate. Look. Jesus must have been um, uh, changing position uh, on, on the cross to, in order to breathe. So here again, we've moved into an a priori conclusion. The blood flow patterns support what I think. So, hey, you know, and so he presented that information. And because the book became so popular and because I think, I think it's easy for people to wrap their head around the idea of suffocation. Yeah, okay, I understand that, yeah. When we start talking about traumatic hemorrhagic shock, complications of shock, then we're moving into a more complex discussion. Um, and that's a little bit harder to discuss in, in a, a lay population context. But things in physiologic systems and medical conditions don't always come to us in simple terms, and we have to deal with them uh, in what is medically logical. So that's that's where the idea came from, and it became enormous, enormously popular. I, I did an interview one time where the I, where I started talking about this, and I said, "Oh no, he suffocated." It's like, dude, <laughs> you know, you can have your own medical opinion, but go to medical school first and kind of do some study. But you can have your opinion, but you know, I'm here to talk to you about what seems logical. So. Uh, so that, that, uh, but it's become so much part of church folklore that every, every Easter, I hear a sermon about how Jesus suffocated every time. Well, um, and, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it just didn't happen that way. Yeah. Does it take, does it take days to suffocate? Does it take a week to suffocate? Uh, does it? No. Now, and, and I, and I quoted Eusebius earlier, uh, Eusebius thought, people starved to death when they were crucifying. He thought they died of deprivation, which is an uncomfortable death, but that's what he thought. What is conspicuously absent from uh, ancient literature is the idea that, um, that they were suffocating on the cross. Um, and I would refer you to Dr. McGovern's article, which I sent you, I think is, is an excellent sort of deep dive on that, on that subject. That'll be um, on my blog, just for the listeners, uh, the article he's talking about now. Um, yeah. I have a, if I if I can go to my slides, I can show you a picture from Dachau. Do we have time for that? Yeah, of course. Uh, let me see. 
once we're done with that, I think Daniel had a follow-up question. I saw him trying to speak. So once he shows his image. And sorry, give me a minute. Uh, since I'm on this slide, I'm, I'll talk about it. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. The uh, the chest wound, what how the chest wound would occur is it would enter on the shroud of turn. It's at the sixth intercostal space, the sixth space between the ribs, down on the right side. And to do that, it, to have the description that's described in John chapter 19, it would enter the chest cavity and first encounter uh, liquid around the lung, which is called a pleural effusion. Pleural effusion is going to be a clear fluid and described by any kind of observer as as water. Uh, once it the uh, spear entered the right side of the heart, where it would be more likely to have reservoir of blood that would mix with the pleural effusion, and then the appearance of the liquid emanating from the chest wound would look like blood. That's that is is a, a, a very easily understandable uh, explanation of why we have the dual appearance of water and blood emanating uh, from the chest wall. Um, and uh, this is a picture from Dachau uh, of the Nazi concentration torture of suspension suspension torture. And you see this. Uh, you guys see this? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You see this poor individual uh, where his arms are rotated behind him. Do you see that? Yeah. And so his shoulders would sublux. The uh, the shoulder blades or the scapula would be be rotated, and uh, the uh, it would uh, expand the chest wall. The muscles that in insert from the shoulder blade onto the chest wall are called the serratus anterior muscles. Those would pull the chest wall apart. Or expand and uh, and cause the breathing to become difficult and, and and even restrict diaphragmatic movement. So, in Dr. Barbet's example, um, someone in this position uh, could could or this torture could be progressed to murder. And in Dr. Barbet's example, it would it would occur in three hours. And I want to ask you both of you: Is that crucifixion? I, I was going to comment that uh, seems more in line with, say, a Jehovah's Witnesses uh, sort of model of Jesus being crucified on a spike as opposed to a T-style cross. Well, the Jehovah's Witness ar argument is that the the Greek word for cross is staros, uh, which is is in classical Greek a, uh, a stake. And, the, and I, I told you before that the Romans did that and they burnt people up to light Nero's garden. Um, but uh, the Bible wasn't written in, in classical Greek. It was written in, in Koine Greek, which was the lingua franca of the Mediterranean world at the time. Uh, so their, their argument doesn't, doesn't really carry over as valid to, yeah. to biblical scholars in my reading. Um, so the people being suspended on a stake is an ancient practice. Um, but the point here is that the vector forces of the arm on the chest and the muscles that attach the chest are extremely different. And this is as exaggerated as could possibly be because the shoulder blades are not just as arms overhead. The shoulder blades are rot rotated in an extreme position with the arms behind their back and hoisted above him. So it couldn't be any worse than that in terms of the extraction, the vector force on the chest wall. 
Um, this is uh, dramatically different than uh, crucifixion. Let me show you another slide. Uh, if I can find it. Forgive me, it took me a minute here. And after this, I want to I want to move on to. Now look at this. This is this is uh, thought to be the first depiction of uh, of crucifixion, and uh, it was found in Puteoli, Italy, uh, and it dates to the the time of the Emperor Trajan or Hadrian, which would be the late first, early second century. It's the crucifixion of a female called Alcamilla. The uh, the name is inscribed up here, although it's not legible on this image. What you see here is uh, you can see the depiction of scourge marks. You can see the feet. To me, I think they're trying to depict that the, the, the nail is coming laterally through the foot. Could be wrong, but that's what I think they're trying to depict. Please notice this is a Tau cross. You know? So crucifixion didn't occur on a stake. I'm not saying they didn't impale people and suspend them on a stake, but that's not crucifixion. Awesome. All right. So yeah, if you're yeah, do you still have more to? Okay. This is uh, you probably have seen this one. The uh, uh, graffito blasphemo was found in Rome, and uh, uh, circa 200 A.D. And this is. Uh, the inscription says Alexa Manos adores his God. And uh, in ancient Rome, it was it was typical to for to depict the Christian God as a human with uh, features of a donkey. And you see that here with the head of a donkey. What I want you to notice is the shape of the cross is a T. Yeah. Okay. So I'll stop the screen share here. Okay, perfect. Um, all right, so so I hear everything you're saying. You've kind of answered this next question a bit, but let's kind of stress it. So so obviously there are some skeptics and atheists out there, um, and you've kind of pointed to exceptions like in Josephus. Uh, and I have a lot of Muslim listeners, um, Ahmadiyya Muslims. They they believe in what's called the swoon theory. Um, so I want to kind of turn it to you. Like, is is it really plausible at all from a medical perspective that Jesus could have lived and swooned on the cross and then through some combination of you know alloys or myrrh or something he would have revived a few days later is, is that even possible from a medical perspective or what's your take on that well i've done a lot of courtroom depositions i told you that earlier uh with a reasonable degree of medical certainty that's not possible and that's that would be submissible in a court of law the reasonable degree of medical probability more likely than not is what's you know accepted in a court of law but here we're talking about something that we talked about uh roman military discipline we talked about crucifixion practices um to allow the person to escape death would be um would mean death for them uh beside the fact that the descriptions of jesus execution suggests that he was progressing into shock before he ever got to the cross itself and that death was rapid and i think the centurion pronouncing death is credible 
Um, yeah. Okay. So beyond that, what about a spear going through the chest? Who's going to live through that, particularly in the ancient world? Well, they could maybe sew it together with fishing line, but that would be the best they could do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, go ahead, Danny. You're not going to get a situation uh, where uh, three days later, uh, Jesus is going to come walking in uh, to the upper room and Thomas is going to go, my Lord and my God. Um, for, for that. Or he might, if he does say that, he's not going to, uh, it's not going to be, oh, he's here and he's risen. It's going to be some somebody get him a blanket or something <laughs> before he uh, pa passes over, right? Well, you know, if if Jesus, let's just say, okay, let's say Jesus survived and you nursed him back to health and he moved to the south of France with Mary Magdalene, and you were going to stick around Jerusalem and tell everybody he resurrected, and then you and all your buddies start getting killed? Are you going to keep perpetrating a hoax in that context? No, I mean, people will die for something they deeply believe in. Um, but nobody dies for a lie. You know? And so that's 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 just, you know, that just kind of doesn't make sense. One thing, um, one thing I, I'd like to ask you, so I, take off your medical hat and put on your theologian's hat for a second, because one thing with Muslim, with the Muslims, uh, they're not restricted to only a naturalistic swoon theory. They could come up, well, maybe there was a supernatural swoon theory. Sure, and medically speaking, there's no way you could survive, but maybe it was a miracle of God. Um, uh, I'm just kind of interested if, if someone goes for a supernatural swoon theory, how would you respond to that? Theological objection. Theological objection. I I guess it's. I'm not sure I fully understand it. The question. I mean, so we're talking. So we'll switch into theology now. Which you know, I'm not an academic theologian. I'm I'm an amateur theologian, in the in the old English word meaning of the word amateur is someone that loves theology. Um, and the Bible is an open source document. So when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, I think the word is tetelestai in Greek. And that was an accounting term in the first century. The uh, in fact, merchants would have an abbreviation for that word that they would stamp on a bill of sale when it was paid. And an ancient person, a person in the first century, reading that description of what Jesus said would have understood that Jesus said, it's paid in full. What's paid in full? You know, now our redemption wasn't finished then because our redemption wasn't finished till Jesus presented his blood before God the Father in Hebrews chapter 9. And a lot of people believe that Jesus was in hell from the time he died until his resurrection. We get that from uh, Psalm uh, 16, where, uh, the, and Peter quoted that on his first sermon in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, thou shalt leave, not leave my soul in hell, or, or the, see your, have your holy one see corruption or decay. And that's thought to be a prophetic description of the resurrection of Jesus. And when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, in, in Orthodox Christianity, we believe in the Trinity of God, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we, we, at that moment when Jesus said that, the Trinity was fractured. And the theological part of that is, that's where we were. Without Christ, that's where we are, without God in this world. And Jesus experienced that. Jesus experienced hell. He experienced everything that the condemned human race would experience in the absence of receiving the forgiveness that he purchased for us with his death and again with his resurrection. So from a theological standpoint, the suffering of Jesus was in, in the place of you and I, of every human being, not and even the people that that reject him, don't believe him, curse him, don't want to talk about it, ignore it. He died for them too. And he, you know, he Jesus said hell was made for the devil and his angels, not for humans. I, I'm sure that it breaks his heart every time a human enters eternity without forgiveness from God. I'm sure that that bothers him because of the extreme penalty and, and price that he paid to bring forgiveness and restore relationship between God and humans. So <clears throat> to say that, well, Jesus really died, but then, you know, he kind of got better and God helped him out. He, you know, I, I think that that minimizes or, or uh, distorts the huge significance of what occurred because the we talk about the physical and we've been talking about the physical suffering of Jesus uh but the spiritual suffering the greater significance of what occurred we can talk about it i don't think we can understand it at all the trinity is fractured jesus is in hell you know that's 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 difficult to even contemplate um but that that's what brings us forgiveness and the you know jesus did it for us and so there's only to, to you know we've got to do something we've got to respond to that um you know the the way to become right with god to receive forgiveness of god is not through um, doing a, an enormous amount of penance or or giving to the poor or doing you you name it it it's it's uh it's about uh you know, acknowledging and responding to the work that Jesus did in his outreached hand to you that requires two things. Uh, one is contrition, that you have to understand that uh, you need forgiveness from God, that there's something wrong with you desperately, and you need that forgiveness. The other is to acknowledge that that forgiveness came through Jesus and what he did and what we've been describing, and that you pray and you receive that uh, for yourself, and you acknowledge him, and you acknowledge that your sins are forgiven because of that, and you seek to to follow him that way. So it's it's a simple process, but it's a profound one, and for some people, very difficult to the point that they they won't do it. But uh, in a humble heart, that's how you come to God and receive what Jesus did uh, for us. And I I think that's the theological side of uh, that you're asking. Gotcha. Yeah, per perfect answer. Thank you. I know that's that's not your expertise, but hey, as Christians, we're all theologians as well. So I want to. Bible's an open source document, and I would just say, you know, I, don't believe me because I said it. You know, go and look for yourself. 
Yeah. I mean, the things we t we talk about are multiply attested to in the, in the Bible itself. It's and uh, you know, in the chapter two of my book, I talk how we know about Jesus and how the Bible descended to us, and the different things that people have tried to say that, uh, about error in the Bible, but. You know, there are armies of scholars studying the scriptures, preparing study Bibles and everything else, every controversial anything about any verse, you get a study Bible, that stuff is talked about in great detail. Uh, you can you can read the Gospels of of uh, Jesus and under, and know for sure that they are penned by the authors that we believe wrote them and that they have been handed down through time without corruption. And uh, so anybody can pick up a Bible and understand what Jesus said and did. Said, yeah, awesome. All right, well, all right, well, let's put your medical hat back on now. And let's look at the other side of the equation. So great, we've talked a lot about Jesus' death. For sure, he would have died. But now let's look at some of the evidence for his resurrection after that. And Obviously, the famous, the best evidence for that are these resurrection appearances. And one of the areas you specialized in is, look, skeptics will come back and they'll offer various psychology-based explanations. Oh, hallucinations, illusions, mass hysteria, conversion disorder, all these types of mechanisms. So I want to turn it over to you, someone who studied this as a medical expert. Uh, you know, what's your take on these types of explanations? Can these appearances be explained naturally in this in this way um i, I want to screen share again if i could uh, uh, yep absolutely let me get back to i don't mean to take too much time so no of course you're the guest so if you don't have time limits i'm happy to keep going as long as it takes you know we, we talked before that Jesus was crucified. That's a historical fact. And any any reasonable historian is going to acknowledge that. And that Jesus, and as we read from Tacitus, who was an unfavorable historian about Jesus, said he, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate and his disciples had some kind of weird belief. So that's historical fact, and nobody, a serious historian, is not going to contend with that. So if you're going to deal with that, and I and I, I, I get it that a lot of people are not going to believe in Jesus. Um, if there's six billion people in the earth and only one billion of them are Christians, even nominally, there's most people don't believe in Jesus. I get it. Um, but if you're going to step up and be academically responsible and think about it, how are you going to think about it? If you say, well, Jesus resurrected as the Bible teaches, then Christianity is true. Well, a lot of people just are not going to accept that. So what are our other options? He didn't die. Well, you know, we've we have talked about how the swoon theory just really, really doesn't make make sense at all. Um uh the favorite my favorite sentence in my book is uh uh the swoon theory is simply balderdash. <laughs> I, if I use stronger language, I'd be censored, I guess. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Um, but so if 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 these two things are unacceptable, then we got to come over and start talking about, well, what did the disciples do that goofed it up? Um, you know, well, they perpetrated a hoax. 
they moved the body. They said he resurrected and, you know, and then they, they want to start this rogue religion that would get them killed. You know, how much sense does that make? They went to the wrong tomb. The body was snatched and they thought Jesus resurrected. Well, does that make sense to anyone? I, I I tell the story in my book of a of a young uh, Union Army officer who was at Ford's Theater when Abraham Lincoln was shot. His name was Charles Leal. He was within seconds. He was in the room. His first year in practice, he couldn't even wear his uniform in public because he was afraid he'd get killed. He he's in the room and he finds Lincoln dead, and he starts examining him. And with his left small finger, he finds the bullet wound and pulls a clot out. Then he does CPR and he gets some vital signs back. Then he held Lincoln's hand for 10 hours till he died. And he said because he wanted Lincoln to know that when he died, because he knew he was going to die, that there was a friend present. And sometimes people rally at the moment of death. Uh, that's called a terminal lucidity. People kind of uh, rally and become lucid. Um, and you may know in the, in the, in the late 19th uh, century, there was an attempt to steal Lincoln's body. Yeah. It, it got bungled. <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't pull it off. Yeah. But I, I just happen to wonder, do you think if Charles Leal went to Lincoln's tomb and found it empty, would he think that he resurrected? No, <laughs> Who thinks that? You yeah. know, Mary Magdalene went to Peter and said, they've taken away his body. I don't know where they've laid it. An empty tomb, going to the wrong tomb, any of that doesn't make anybody think anybody resurrected. That's just bizarre. Uh, so... You know, people understand the logical problems uh, with that. So you don't have a whole lot of options left. Well, you could you could propose, you know, psychiatric phenomena. They were hallucinating. Well, you know, if you're going to say that, if you're going to offer a medical explanation for what the disciples were experiencing, you need to provide a medical opinion and, and substantiation about how that would occur. Uh, because a hallucination is a symptom. It's not really a diagnosis. You don't, just don't say they were hallucinating and shrug and walk away and think you've done well because you haven't. And so hallucinations occur primarily by three underlying mechanisms, uh, psychophysiological, uh, which could uh, uh, occur from perhaps uh, certain types of strokes or tumors or uh, things that could uh, cause hallucinations, uh, 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 psychodynamic uh, would be uh, psychiatric disease and an intrusion into the uh, uh, conscious mind, which is uh, people with severe mental illness can hallucinate, or psychobiochemical, uh, where you have uh, derangement. Of, of the brain chemistry where people go into a state of delirium. And so you see that with alcoholic withdrawal, what's called the DTs. Um, but, you know, I, I have seen people in all those, in, in all those conditions, and it's a very ugly thing to witness. Uh, I was talking to a physician one time and he said, you know, we see things that humans shouldn't have to see. And I, that's true. I mean, I think 
probably most of us in the medical work carry a certain level of PTSD. I've seen things that I don't like to think about. And to see someone in a chemical delirium is is um, is really ugly. I mean, they they see snakes crawling in the bed. They see elephants walking in the room. It's scary. They're not having lunch with their beloved savior. Uh, and so when I I collected all that literature and read through all of it, and just understood that they they had no idea what they were talking about. And uh, uh, I was even. I was even reading the book, a book by one of the main proponents, a, a, a skeptic scholar named Gerd Ludemann. And I, I threw the book on the floor and I said, you believe that? I was talking to the book. I, I, forgive me. I, I don't know. <laughs> had my own psychiatric moment. When I was talking to the book, I said, how can you believe that? You know, it's, it's, it's just clear that they had no idea what they were talking about. And so you know, is it, were all the disciples uh, suffering severe physical, psychiatric, or, or mental illness to the state that they were all hallucinating at, at the same time? Well, that, that's really not supportable. We're dealing with a group of people that Jesus hand-selected, trained, and who deployed the rapid expansion of, of Christianity in the first century that we read, I read Tacitus, by the time of AD 64, when, when they, Nero launched his first mass persecution of Christians, they were all over the place. So there was a rapid expansion of Christianity in the first century. People, so these people were really capable and dedicated. Um, the other thing is that uh, we talk about uh, group group appearances with Jesus. You mentioned, uh, uh, or Dan mentioned, when Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas. So, you know, they're all seeing Jesus. There's a dozen of them, or 11 of them, and they see Jesus. And in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the first creed of the church, Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. And and when they recited the creed in those days, they would say, and most of them are still living. So you can go talk to them. Well, we can't say that creed today, but we can understand the historical significance of it. And we read the work from Tacitus. Those people, you know, even people that didn't see him, it was so real to them, their faith in Christ, that they would die. They would accept being burned on the stake or crucified or whatever manner of torture, rather than to say it didn't happen. So the group, the group uh, experiences with Jesus ha cannot, there is no psychiatric explanation for that. So that's just, just outside the bounds of any kind of, of psychiatric phenomena. Now, there are, there are times where groups of people can experience what you would call hallucinatory uh, sorts of phenomena. Um, but that those kind of things are rare, and they occur in a sense where there is a group sense of excitement and expectation. And uh, they're they're never identical from person to person, well, because they couldn't be. Because any kind of hallucinatory uh, occurrence is in the only and only and, and exclusively in the milieu of the person's brain. Again, when we're talking about a hallucination, I should give a definition. It's it's an experience uh, that is uh, 
considered by the real considered real by the conscious mind for which there is no external uh stimulus of any of the five senses so the hallucination uh you know is real but there's no there's no physical basis for it it's in the milieu of the person's brain so in, in groups of people that experience that it's it's never the same from individual inter, individual to individual with the disciples that group dynamic was not present they were in hiding and the door was locked and Jesus walked through the wall they thought they were next right so they were forlorn they were in hiding they did not go to the uh, grave on Easter Sunday morning the women went there to complete the embalming process but nobody else went there was no Easter sunrise service that day. So what oh sorry. Is is it okay if I just kind of ask you a question that's related to what you're saying here? So yeah. So so um granted with group collective hallucinations, they don't happen in the sense that no one's having identical uh hallucinations kind of thing, but they can have similar hallucinations through like explaining to people, you know, like, oh, I, I'm saw I saw Jesus or something. Could some kind of social contagion like that, if if somebody said, I saw, I saw Jesus or something, could that create the expectation where they would have similar enough hallucinations? Or what's your take on something like that? I I don't know. That kind of ventures into a speculative sort of discussion. I think similarity does not equate to sameness yeah fair enough all right cool uh yeah so continue on i didn't i didn't want to interrupt i just wanted to get your take on something like that no uh carry on uh I, i'm not sure if I, I think i was kind of done with that unless you had a follow-up question daniel um, well i just wanted to get uh on these sort of group experiences and stuff like that um one sort of discussion that I've sort of seen from authors like Tom Wright or uh, Jake O'Connell and sorts is that it's very much framed, these sorts of experiences or psychological experiences in general um, are framed by the person's background knowledge. Um, I, I wonder, because this is the like one of the core theses of Tom Wright's uh, uh, book, is that basically um, when you look at uh, Second Temple Judaism, uh, the disciples, even if you posit some sort of experience or psychological phenomenon, um, if they had any expectation, uh, the last thing it would be would be um, uh, that Jesus was uh, resurrecting. Um, even if they saw him as exalted or something, that they had the framework from which. Uh, I'm curious from like the medical perspective when it comes to hallucinations, is that sort of like when people sort of have these experiences, uh, do, is that sort of accurate? Is that what we sort of see in the literature that people sort of, um, uh, when they interpret these, they interpret them within frameworks that they already have, or do people sort of change um, their perspectives uh, in that regard? Um, well, I, I, I'll answer it from a historical context. I, I, the, the Jews didn't have any concept of a near-term resurrection. A lot of them, uh, the Pharisees in particular had, uh, and a lot of the general population had a concept of resurrection at the end of time. Uh, but not a near-term resurrection. They had no; they didn't see it coming. In spite of the fact Jesus would told them several times, 
they didn't get it. It didn't register on on them. They did not. They did not believe in that. And of course, a lot of the Jewish contingency, the the, uh, the Sadducees, who were the major components of the Sanhedrin, did not believe in it at all. Um, in terms of you know the, the group phenomena, um, you know, I, I, people used to call it mass hysteria. I think now we call it or more modern term would be group sociogenic illness uh and i've seen that a time or two from uh uh you know people that had a uh, again hysterical is not the right word but a conversion experience where they experienced par paralysis because I, i'm thinking of a young girl that that was happening and at the time and uh she experienced that which was completely psych psychiatrically mediated um, so, so that occurs, but uh, it's rare and it's generally transient. In terms of people's expectations of things, again, the disciples didn't have that expectation. They were not present uh, Easter Sunday morning. Uh, in terms of what people believe and what people think, I, you know, and how that pertains to what they believe they see, again, we're entering into a speculative discussion. I, I, I can't really say, I mean, we you know, when people have sort of uh, fictitious experiences, then it can be, you know, different, different sorts of things. Uh, whereas you have, uh, the descriptions become, you know, uh, beyond natural descriptions in a way that, that, you know, may, may not be possible. I'm thinking of the Gospel of Peter, where, which is pseudepigrapha, where, where, uh, allegedly, when Jesus resurrected out of the tomb uh, with two angels and his head reached up into the clouds. And so you can look at that and say, well, okay, but that's more like a Marvel comic strip than than a, a genuine description. So I don't know. I, it's been a while since I read McConnell's stuff. Uh, group phenomena is, is, is not particularly interesting to me. Uh, the times that I've seen it, again, was something I wished I had not seen. No one wants to see an adolescent youngster with a paralysis that's psychiatrically mediated. That's an ugly thing to see. It's, it's a heartbreaking thing to see. Um, but generally, people did well, and she did well. Uh, and I, I think I contributed to that. I won't go into the details. Sure. Okay. Um, so I, I have two quick follow-up questions on this thing. So, um, okay, so, so the first thing, kind of piggybacking off what Daniel was saying, one argument that I have to, for thinking that at the very least the group appearance to the 12 um, was authentic. And I argue it's because, based on expectations, but specifically the Jews, even if you could get over and try to say, oh, well, maybe they were open to a, re a unique resurrection. Let's just say for the sake of argument that that's the case to help the skeptic. Even then it still fails because they would have expected Jesus to come in a glorious resurrection body. But all of them saw him in a normal, mundane manner. And I, I think even if you allow for social contagion and they had hallucinations or whatever, I would say that at least some of them would have seen Jesus in a glorious resurrection thing. And that would have taken over. We would have had the teaching that he was in a glorious resurrection. So, so that kind of speaks against the hallucination that does that make sense or what do you think? Uh, yeah no i get your point i mean and and i i think you're correct on an on underlying premise that that they were expecting jesus to drive the romans out and to become the uh, the messiah with a now term 
theocracy instated and drive the Romans out, and God's going to rule and reign again in in, in uh, Israel. And and that's uh, that's what they were thinking. They were looking for that that uh, description of the Messiah, which as Christians we know or believe that that's uh, at the end of time. But they were looking at it near term, and that's what they were expecting. And they and. As I said, they never got it. They never got the greater meaning of what was happening until much later. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you would think that they would they would maybe have some sort of altered description. But again, I just I just don't think that it's it's a, a tenable position to to even suggest that uh, a hallucinatory phenomena. Sure. All right. Cool. Um, okay. So the the last question on the hallucinations before we move on to the shroud of Turin stuff. Um, so I'm kind of interested, you kind of mentioned, look, these group, the group appearances, hallucination and psychology based mechanisms don't work. Um, so I wanted to ask you, okay, but with any of the appearances, do you think they could work for any of them, uh, including individual ones or why or why not? And also, uh, would you mind, uh, talking a little bit about the apostle Paul specifically, because he was an interesting case in that he's a skeptic. So yeah, what's your take on those? Uh, well, I think you have my article, yeah, uh, and and we talk about that, and, and Dr. Habermas uh, went into detail about that. That that you know, a consensus of theological scholars concur that Paul believed that he encountered the, the bodily or physical Jesus on on the road uh, to Damascus. Um, the people, excuse me, the people that have uh, criticized uh, or offered skeptical opinions about Paul. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, thought that uh, Paul experienced a conversion disorder. Uh, and uh, conversion in uh, Freudian psychoanalysis is when uh, uh, psychologic pain is converted into physiological or, or neurologic symptoms. The classical description of that is uh, the mother that finds uh, her child uh, drowned in, in the bathtub or swimming pool goes blind. They just can't deal with the psychological pain of that. Um, and people over time kind of get past that and, and recover neurologic function, which is not, which again, the interruption of the neurologic function is not physiologically mediated, it's psychiatrically mediated. That occurs. And again, I've seen that in the case I, I mentioned previously, the young girl with paralysis. So, uh, you know, again, it's an ugly thing to witness, but 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 that that can occur. Now, uh, what is is peculiar or sets that apart is that uh, the interruption of neurologic function does not accompany also a hallucination. If you say, "Well, Paul went blind; he had this internal turmoil. He went blind, and he saw Jesus." Well, that's not a conversion disorder because the, those kinds of things don't occur simultaneously. Uh, in, in other words, people with conversion disorder don't also have hallucinations that, that would require a dual diagnosis of some kind. He had a conversion disorder and he had extreme psychiatric illness uh, or, or a state of delirium or something that made him really, really sick at that moment in a way that, you know, would probably preclude him from going on in life and being productive in any sort of way. So that's divergent from 
modern understanding of of what uh, of uh, what con conversion uh, disorders are. The other thing is that with conversion disorder, people generally get past it and they go on with their life. Um, uh, and it may take some time, may take some therapy, but they generally resume their usual life activity. Now, Paul's usual life activity was persecuting Christians, watching them get stoned with mob violence in the case of Stephen, for example, holding their coats and handing them rocks, you know. So, but he made a 180 degree turn. He made an extreme life change and became the primary proponent of Christianity to the non-Jewish world in his time. And wrote a major proponent of uh, the New Testament and the theological discussions of who Jesus was and and the meaning of his of his life and death and resurrection to the point that uh, he eventually was uh, beheaded for that um, all those things are inconsistent with a, a conversion disorder so I I don't think you I mean I can understand how dr. Young Carl Young thought, that was because we have the biblical description of uh, Paul going blind for three days after encountering Jesus, but uh, we can't relegate that to a uh, conversion phenomena. Um, and and it, it just it just doesn't hold weight in current understanding. Sure. All right. All right. Perfect. Um, so I think we can move into the part that uh half of my audience at least is waiting for um your take on the shrug wait a minute oh sure i have a surprise for your audience oh very well all right wait for it wait for it i'm waiting i'm gonna tell you where the shroud of turin was manufactured oh okay very interesting but you gotta wait till the end of the show <laughs> <laughs> okay so um okay what so a teaser what a teaser i know <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so Joe, I want to kind of ask you just in general. So, you know, forget about from a medical or forensic perspective, just in general, uh, the Shroud of Turin, what, what's kind of your take on the, the evidence for and against that? That's a pretty open-ended question. What, what do you, what, tell me, what, tell me what, what, what's your, what's give me your a more point? precise question. Okay, well, okay, so in the first place, what's your take on the historical provenance of the Shroud? Um, uh, I'm not an expert on the historical provenance of the Shroud. The, that can be traced probably back to 13, whatever it was, 4050, where it came into the custody of the Savoy family. Uh, and then before that, it's literary references to people uh, obtaining or possessing the burial cloth of Jesus. And then there's the Prey Codex, Pray named after a guy, not a prayer book, um, that dates to the late 12th century, which is a pretty accurate uh, artistic de uh, depiction of the Shroud of Turin. So we know we know that it's an ancient cloth. Uh, I'm not an expert on on the historical provenance, and I think that a lot of a lot to my scant reading about it, it becomes conjecture uh, prior to the uh, um, 14th century okay. or 12th century. Okay. Um, so do, would you say you believe that it covered Jesus? It's Jesus's burial shroud or you're agnostic? You're not sure. That's not a scientific determination. Uh, I, I, I lectured on the Shroud of Turin in churches and national conferences. And um, I never say it's the burial cloth of Jesus. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. We just talk. We just talk about the observations of the cloth. Stick to that. Okay. Um, and it's an expansive sort of discussion. Um, I, I'm going to let you lead and ask what you want to ask, and and we can talk about it as long as you want, and you can, and I'll tell you when I don't know, like I just did. Fair, fair enough, and and like I said, yeah, like I promise you, I'm not going to get too specific, but I just kind of want your general take, like where do you stand? And yeah, so okay, the the last general question I have for you is the scientific evidence. You, you're aware of STIRP and their findings and stuff. Yes. Um, what's what's kind of your general take on that? Do you think that there's evidence that suggests these images were formed miraculously or like what's no no they're not formed miraculously neither were they when neither were they applied by human hand uh what you see on the shroud of turin uh is uh two things you see a very very faint image of uh, a man that uh is consistent with the biblical descriptions of uh uh, Jesus crucifixion, and then you see some blood stains. Uh, the shroud itself has the physical characteristics in terms of dimensions of a burial cloth. Uh, that is, again, you, you know, it's well documented Jewish funerary customs that that's how they would uh, bury people, wrap them in a, in a uh, shroud, and uh, tie tie it with uh, strips. <clears throat> In Jesus, in the biblical descriptions of Jesus, they had to get him off the cross and get him into the tomb quickly because the Sabbath was about to start and they couldn't be doing that by sundown. So they had to get him into a nearby tomb uh, by Joseph of Arimathea. When we look at the shroud image, um, you know, there, there's, I don't know how many, a bunch of pet theory, I, I'm going to call them pet theories. Uh, a lot of them kind of based on pseudoscience or kind of things that speculate about that. None of those are terribly interesting to me. Uh, I do, I, I favor the descriptions uh, of the Shroud of Turin uh, research project. And I, th I think that uh, uh, Ray Rogers' description of the image formation is the most logically compelling. Um, Maillard reaction type deal. What's that? A Maillard reaction type thing, right? Maillard, re Maillard reaction, yeah. Uh, because, well, here's how, I'm not going to tell you where till the end, okay. but how the cloth was manufactured um, is, it is consistent with uh, linen manufacturing prior to the Middle Ages. And uh, Pliny the Elder wrote uh, what people call the first encyclopedia. Um, I think it's called natural history is what he called it. Yeah. But uh, he was a voracious student. He read constantly. When, when he was too tired to read, he had other people read to him. And he told us how uh, linen was manufactured. Now, linen was ubiquitous, and it's harvested from uh, the flax plant. So the plant fibers, they were used everywhere. So that doesn't give us a clue about where the shroud came from. Uh, Pliny lived in uh, <clears throat> Rome, and I think he lived also in Germany during the military, and then he had a uh, government appointment in Spain. So he describes linen manufacturing in uh, 
uh, Spain or describes the quality of linen in Spain and Italy in his natural history. But basically, they would take uh, uh, tufts of uh, fibers from the flax seed. Uh, they would uh, dye them uh, in handfuls. Then they would weave it into cloths and stabilize it with starch and then uh, wash it with soapweed. And when you look at the Shroud of Turin, you can see a faint uh, sort of plaid background on the cloth, which would be consistent with that weaving and dyeing in handful measures while producing the cloth. Um, that's in contradistinction to medieval linen, which would be woven then dyed all at once. So you don't have that kind of underlying sort of uh, plaid appearance. Uh, and so the 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 weave description, the characteristics of the weave appear to be consistent with something that's earlier than uh, the Middle Ages. And when we talk about the to, to cut to the to the quick about how that that was the the linen while they were uh, weaving it, they would stabilize the cloth uh, the weave with uh, a starch. Then they would wash it with uh, soapweed. Now, the process that process left a contaminant on the cloth, specifically a starch residue, <clears throat> which are polysaccharides or <clears throat> chains of uh, sugar molecules, glucose molecules. Um, and then, when uh, if if a polysaccharide is becomes in contact with uh, an ammonia-based compound, then a, a pigment can be manufactured or produced as a side product during a Maillard reaction. Uh, Maillard reactions are common and well studied. People say that's why um, crust on a bread is brown. And so that the cloth, if it were wrapped around a cadaver, there would start to emit ammonia compounds, nitrogen-based compounds from the decaying body. That would react with the starch contaminant or starch residue on the cloth and pigment or could form as a side reaction uh, by, by the Maillard reaction. <clears throat> That's the most logical basis for to explain the image formation. Uh, because the image is expressly and only on superficial fibers uh, of, of the cloth. It doesn't penetrate through the cloth. It doesn't penetrate through the fiber. It's just on, on a very superficial aspect of superficial fibers. Um, so, you know, there's no paint there. There's no myrrh. There's no aloe. It was, it was well studied by, by multiple mechanisms you know, uh, ancient paints and anything like that would have been easily detectable, if not by like my, micros, microscopy, but, you know, the shroud was exposed to a fire in 1532. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't burned up, but had there been medieval paint there, that, that would have been easily visible. Uh, you know, they threw water on it, would have washed the paint off. There's no paint there. The density of the fibers are there. The, the image of the Shroud of Turin was not applied by a human hand. 
it basically is a gas diffusion mechanism of uh, nitrogen-based gases from, emitting from a cadaver, causing a Maillard reaction with a starch residue on the superficial fibers that left a uh, pigment. Um, and the pigment is not in the fiber. The pigment could be removed by diamide, a reducing agent, leaving the fiber itself unharmed, unchanged. Uh, so it's it's something that was not nascent to the fiber itself. It didn't penetrate through the fiber. Now, a lot of people, I've, I've heard really smart, well-known people say things like, oh, it's an x-ray. Oh, there's it's radiation. Oh, you know, I mean, what, tell me, do you know, what, what would be, what would be an effect of radiation? Do you know? I mean, what would be an immediate effect of radiation? Yeah, I, yeah. Thermal energy. Thermal yeah. energy. Thermal energy, right? Um, a plant fiber is cellulose. Cellulose is a repeating chain of hexose or five carbon chain sugars. And they're coupled in a way that they don't de degrade. So uh, that's how you get fiber in your diet. You eat cellulose <laughs> and it keeps you going. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, it's pretty stable. You know, the, the oldest known linen I think is, it's either three or 4,000 years found in Egypt. If you leave linen alone, it's, it's, it's going to last for essentially forever. You know, if you don't do things to it, to contaminate it or destroy it. Um, if you expose a chain of carbon-based cyclic, cyclic hydrocarbons, hexose sugars, and you expose it to heat and you, call, and you extract a water molecule, let's say by a heat mechanism or what we would call a caramelization reaction, that makes the adjacent uh, carbon atom highly, it's a free radical now, what we'd call a free rat, it's highly reactive. It's going to bind to something. And when it does that, it starts to change the configuration. So the fiber will start to change its physical appearance. And if you do that long enough, it'll burn up. But if you short of burning up, you're going to create scorch changes, which are very detectable, if not visually, and they would be visibly detectable by microscopy, but by x-ray refraction, by other sorts of intricate or delicate sorts of testing mechanisms, that's easily detectable. The image on the Shroud of Turin did not form by human hand and did not form by any high energy mechanism. If you scorch the molecule, if you scorch the fiber, it scorches all the way through the fiber, not just on the surface of a few fibers. It's, so it's, I, I don't know if I'm, if I'm if I'm being understandable, but I'm uh, I want people to understand, or you'd understand, that it was not applied by human hand. It's not paint, and there was no high energy mechanism that accounts for it. And uh, the Maillard reaction uh, it has explanatory power in the sense that uh, it explains how the image would form. It's consistent with known uh, ancient uh, weaving practices. Um. Uh, so, uh, 
So, so just uh, if you don't mind me, oh, yeah. I, I just just to clarify for the audience. So your position. So it's interesting because I didn't know you took this, and that's great. That that's awesome. Um, but you take Ray Rogers. I pronounce it wrong. Mayard, is that how it's supposed to be? Mayard. Mayard reaction. Mayard, yes. And for you, is that is that that's it? It's a simple. That's the mechanism, or do you think it works in conjunction? Because I've seen people like Barry Schwartz, they'll say, "Well, that's part of the story," but you also need an additional mechanism. So I'm just wondering where you stand. Is is the well, mark? Uh, well, I know Barry. What did he tell you was the additional mechanism? He doesn't know. Um, well, then I don't know either. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there, there isn't. Why would you want to say something? Why would you want to think that? You know, when Occam's razor, the explanation with the fewest number of special assumptions is most likely correct. When you, when you t take and, and you, you have the linen, you know how it was made, you know there's a contaminant on it because it was detected. They detected starch on the shroud. You, you, you know that uh, amide gases are going to be emitting from a cadaver. It, it's, you know, if you leave it alone and don't, if you, by anyone's measure, um, a Maillard reaction is going to occur in that context. So, I mean, it's going to happen. Sure. And so why not? It's, it's, it's really the most logical, the best explanation, again, with the fewest number of special assumptions. Now, if it was the Maillard reaction, I say if, if it was, then it, it, it would suggest that the Shroud of Turin was actually a burial cloth, but it was removed from the body before liquid components of decay were present. Uh, another interesting observation is that the, the Maillard reaction, I'll call it the Maillard reaction, uh, the pigment is, is not present beneath the blood stains. So the blood blocked it. So the gas was not able to diffuse to the fiber. When blood was present, it stopped, it, it blocked the reaction from occurring. Um, the blood is blood. It contains heme. The, uh, uh, the uh, amino, uh, um, amino acid or protein complex that carries oxygen in our blood. It doesn't mean a whole lot, but, uh, you know, blood's easily accessible, but, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, let me start probing you based on your expertise then as a medical expert, because obviously there are certain anatomical features or forensic conclusions and stuff. So, Start, obviously, we know that you believe this did indeed cover a corpse, um, but what, what is it about the images from a medical perspective that allows you in your expertise to say, yes, this definitely was not some artistic mechanism, it was covered by a real human corpse, and we can tell that medically or forensically or whatever. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I, you know, again, we don't want to say more than what the, the observations can say. Okay. Uh, but the observations are clear that the image was not applied by human hand. The best explanation for that is, is the Maillard reaction. Uh, uh, if, it, if it is the Maillard reaction, then it would suggest that the Shroud of Turin was an actual uh, burial shroud removed from the body before liquid components of decay occurred. You understand that's different than saying, oh yes, it's genuine because that's a very different sort of sub, uh, subjective comment. Uh, but, uh, you know, so it's, 
I'm sorry, my right and left brain don't talk very easily to each other. But what what I really the facts I think are 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 speak for themselves, and people can form their own opinions. Um, but I think the facts are fairly clear, as 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 stated. Uh, you're you're asking, I think, about the dis- description of the man. Yeah, is it anatomically accurate, for example? Or... Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the the man was uh, a, approximately six feet tall. It's hard to know for sure. Uh, the uh, back image is longer than the than the front, which would be consistent with a flexion of the body. Um, <clears throat> there are, depending on how you count them, about a hundred scourge marks. They're consistent with the uh, flagellum that would be used in Roman times. Uh, there are puncture marks on the scalp that would be consistent with the crown of thorns. Uh, the nasal cartilage is separated, uh, which we would call a broken nose, but that's cartilage, it's not a bone fracture. Uh, so consistent with somebody being beat up. Um, <clears throat> I think that there's swelling or a laceration on the right eyelid, if I'm correct, or swelling of the right eye cheek. The... Uh, the neck is flexed. The shoulders are uh, somewhat elevated, uh, which kind of in a shrugging type position, which uh, would be consistent with with being on a cross. Um, there are puncture wounds in the hands. There's a puncture wound in the sixth intercostal space on the right, consistent with the descriptions of uh, the spear wound to Jesus. Uh, there's blood emanating from the feet. Looking at the feet, I uh, just looked at them the other day. I can't exactly tell where the puncture wound is, uh, so I, I don't know. Uh, I I would suspect that it would be in the heels based on archaeological evidence, but I don't know that with certainty. Um, what else can I tell you? People, you know, the body's, the body's flexed. I, I've heard people, people get off on tangents what I, that I, I think are tangents. Well, how come we don't see the neck? Because yeah. the neck was flexed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, how how come we don't see the thumbs? Well, you know, Doctor Zugabe said, "Well, the natural history of the of the hand, or the natural position of the hand. I don't know if I can do it on the film. Um, is is with the thumb slightly uh, uh, what we would call palmer palmer abduction, which is elevated this way. Um, but for me, I mean, I think it's a no brainer. Again, if you take the hand." And you drive a nail through this spot. Some people say, oh, it makes the muscle spasm. No, if you cut the nerve, the muscle spasms for a second, then it becomes flaccid. Mm-hmm. You can't do a thing. It, it becomes. But if you drive a, mu- a nail through that spot, the muscles that pull the thumb in are right here. You would tether the thumb like that. Okay, okay. I mean, yeah. and so that's kind of kind of a no-brainer to me. You know, well, why... Why is the body flexed? Why, you know, you know, um, uh, well, because, because of rigor mortis and uh, the shoulders were shrugged and then the arm, the rigor, rigor would have been broken to position the arms in front of the pelvis. Um, you, you sent me an article. I want to talk about that. I don't know if you're going to get to that or not. I, I was, yeah. Um, well, for, um... okay, I'll let you ask what you want to ask. Then you can ask me about that. Okay, cool. So, so just just a couple follow-ups on on. Okay, so great. So he is anatomically correct. I assume you would say the same about the blood flows and stuff. That these are realistic and 
medically accurate blood flows that given what Jesus went through, yeah, they, they make sense. Well, understand, understand that the body was washed. Okay. Because if he had blood plotches all over the body, we would not have any Maillard reaction. We would not have the faint image with a photonegative-like characteristic that we have. Uh, the photonegative comes from what's called the halftone effect, where the, the not because of variation in the density of the tone, but variation of, of a hue, but variation in the number of fibers per unit area. And that would be consistent with a gas diffusion process. Um, so the body was washed. Had it not been washed, had it had blood spotches all over the body, then we wouldn't have that image. Uh, and what you have is blood emanating from the puncture sites, which can happen. Uh, <clears throat> in people that die violent deaths can have uh, blood ooze from uh, wounds. And I proposed, you know, in, in my medical journal article, that Jesus, I think, experienced a coagulopathy uh, where his blood clotting mechanism was deranged. Okay, so, so and just to kind of clarify, so none of the blood flows as seen on the Shroud Man are from prior to his washing for you kind of thing. You would say that they all- That would be, no, they could not be. Okay, all right, cool. Um, okay, and the other last follow-up on this anatomical issue is, so obviously even Sterp has admitted there are some what appear to be anatomical inaccuracies um, that have been discovered. So. I'm kind of curious, like, are you aware of those? What do you what do you make of those? Like, are those able to be explained in some way or? I'm not sure what you're referring to. Can you be, I mean, there, there are differences. Fingers. I mean, you know, things like the, the difference between the length front and back and those kind of things may seem peculiar, but I, I think they're easily explainable. I'm not sure, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, or, or some people will, skeptics will say, oh, the fingers are too long, or the arm, one of the arms looks like it's too long, or the face is too narrow, stuff stuff like that. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, uh, a, a friend of mine, and, and when I've done lectures on this with my friend, I, I've seen I've seen at arm's distance a digital replica from Barry uh, of the Shroud of Turn, which is precisely accurate. I don't see anything on it that stands out as something that makes me want to say that it's not anatomically correct. I just, I mean, you know, a skeptic can, you can see and think what you want. I just don't see anything like that. And again, we're talking about a gas diffusion process for the mechanism of formation. If you want to say the fingers don't look exactly right to you, I don't know. Maybe Jesus had long fingers, maybe not. Maybe we're, we're dealing with a diffusion process to have some blur of that is not outside the bounds of, of reasonable discussion. Awesome. All right. Um, so my last question for you, you, you wanted to get to before I turn it over to Daniel for his follow-ups, if he has any. Um, so you mentioned that I sent you an article. I had a guest, Arif Khan, who, who's a mutual friend of Barry's, and um, he represents the Ahmadiyya Muslims. And he said, look, no, he, he pointed to um, a, a medical expert on his end who apparently argued in his paper no, the signs on the shroud suggest he was still alive. So therefore, he, this supports the swoon theory. The shroud man was not dead based on the evidence of the guy in the shroud. So you, I sent you that article and you kind of um, gave your response, read through it. So yeah, what's, what's your take? Is there any validity to these findings that maybe the shroud man wasn't dead, but alive when he was wrapped in that shroud? You know, it's a really peculiar article. I'm, I'm surprised that that 
people put much stock in it, to be honest with you. Um, but Dr. Acosta is, is a respected pathologist in his country, uh, Spain, I think. But he, you know, he starts off by saying, well, you know, the, the, the shroud has been established as, as dating to the first century. No, it's not dated at all. It's not. We, we have to, we look at empiric evidence and talk about potential ages from the shroud, but it's not been formally dated correctly by anybody. Um, I, I mean, I, I understand and I appreciate the academic uh, efforts and integrity of people that wanting to deal with the story of Jesus and studying about it, I, I appreciate that. Um, but you, you see, in my book, I don't talk about the Shroud of Turin. I talk about it only in the context of Dr. Barbet's argument. And Dr. Zuckerby and Dr. Barbet uh, both devoted a lot of content to the Shroud of Turin. I did not. Why? Because it carries a lot of controversy on its own. And I didn't want to be accused of circular reasoning. And here you want to ex just carte blanche accept the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus. For sure, it dates to the first century. We, knew, we know this is the genuine article. And then construct an argument that he was alive from that. Um, it it's, it d defies scientific integrity, and I think. Um, but <clears throat> that being said, we'll just accept that and, and, and talk about it from that context. Um, there, there are a number of things I think in here that are misstated. I'm not going to go through it line by line, but the, the gist of his argument is the time to rigor, to rigor mortis. He says <clears throat> that, uh, you know, Jesus was taken off, off the cross and, uh, you know, and then quickly taken to a tomb, and, uh, which is true. And that the shroud was put on him in a couple hours or less, and uh, and rigor mortis would not have occurred in that in that that quickly. And and I I, I understand what he's saying. Uh, you know now, for me, uh, I'm I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm I'm. A relative couch potato, and if I were to fall dead in your uh, talking to you, good folks, it would probably take a couple hours for my body to start going into rigor, and then progress for the subsequent uh, twenty-four hours. But I knew when I was reading this that time to rigor can be highly variable. I knew that, and for you and your audience. I did some supplemental reading, just looking at uh, forensic pathology textbooks. And let me tell you, you, you don't want to look at those books. <laughs> the pictures in those are eye-popping, even to me. And I'm pretty desensitized to any, anything, <laughs> but, but they're pretty eye-popping pictures. I'll just say thank you. <clears throat> but but it, 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 it supported what I already knew, is that time to rigor is really variable. Uh, so that it, it has to do 
you know, muscle fiber contraction is kind of like a piston mechanism, if, if you maybe remember from freshman biology. And rigor occurs with depletion of adenosine triphosphate and, and uh, glycogen storage in the, in the muscle fibers. And uh, so it, it can take a while in a, in a normal context, but it can be really variable. And people that die in a high metabolic state can go into rigor very quickly. Um, you know, an example would be like uh, if you're in a wartime battle and you're running on a battlefield and get shot and fall dead, that person can go into rigor really quick. Or uh, somebody's drowning, caught underwater and drowning, and they're struggling to free themselves and ultimately succumb, they can go into rigor very quickly. And uh, <clears throat> so people that die a violent death can. Uh, can go into rigor mortis very fast. And it's well attested to in pathological literature, the concept of cadaveric spasm, where rigor mortis occurs essentially instantly. So, you know, and here you have Jesus, obviously in a high metabolic state. Obviously his glycogen, his glucose storage uh, molecules would have been depleted. He was deprived. He was beaten to death, walking or beaten, bludgeoned, close to death, bludgeoned, walking all through the night, He's got no glycogen storage left. He dies a violent, high metabolic death. It's very reasonable, if not extremely likely, if not absolutely certain, that he would have gone into rigor mortis very rapidly. So the this is the flawed premise of Dr. Acosta's argument that Jesus just you know, uh, casually went into rigor mortis like the average couch potato, which is it was not the case. He would have gone into rigor mortis very quickly. Um, and that's really consistent with, uh, you know, what we see in the Shroud of Turin. Now, Dr. Acosta says, oh, well, you know, he's flexed and his legs are flexed. He's kind of looks like he might be sitting up and um, I'm going to call, and so he's in a recline, they wrap him in a shroud. They can't tell he's dead. They think he's, you know, they they think he's alive, but they think he's dead. They wrap him in a burial cloth. Then they put him in the tomb in a recliner. I'm going to call that the recliner in the tomb theory. <laughs> and, and then, and, and he has to sit up a little bit because, you know, he's having a hard time breathing. Um. It, it's it's non sequitur, and primarily because the underlying premise of his argument is flawed, that the time to rigor can be very fast, including cadaveric spasm. Um, the thing that's conspicuously absent from Dr. Acosta's article is, uh, what about the spear wound? You know, how do you survive that? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. It's I, again. I don't want to pick pick it apart line by line, but there's there's more than that. There's a lot of problems with this, but um, it, the logic of it doesn't uh, doesn't hold weight. <clears throat> and uh, for for that reason, the pre underlying premise is flawed, and it doesn't take into account all the observations of the shroud. Most significantly, if you want to say he didn't die, explain away the stab wound. Awesome. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for, for taking the time to go through that. Cause I, like I said, there, there are a lot for Muslims in the UK, there are 40,000 of them that all believe in the shroud and they, 
they do believe in this theory. So I think it was worth it to get your medical expertise on it. So yeah, I, I've, I've had a number of Muslim friends. I respect them. And, uh, uh, and I, I salute your the folks that are interested in studying that they even take the time to do it. And I, again, I understand that there's a lot of folks that are not going to believe in Jesus, but it, you know, don't don't buy into a flawed argument to to feel good about it i mean keep studying all right awesome daniel so yeah i'm gonna turn it to you i'm done with my list and yeah i'm sure you have some follow-ups for for joe here yeah um thank you dr bergeron i i actually had wanted to get your view on the overall medical study of the shroud and um what do you think the value it might actually bring to like studies of the shroud um because uh, folks have been studying the medical aspects for the better part well over a century now um, from folks like uh, Robert Buckland to uh, you mentioned Sugabe and stuff like that. I I'm curious on what you make sort of their findings and their methods, um, what sort of value they bring to the study of the shroud in general. Yeah, I don't know that I'm acquainted with, with that. I mean, again, to me, the shroud of Turin is a peripheral issue. I've studied it in the context of studying my general research on on crucifixion and specifically with Dr. Barbet's uh, descriptions and 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 then I got to know Barry Schwartz and so I've, I've studied in that context and I've lectured on it but I, I I would not call myself a shroud expert and don't want to be viewed as a shroud spokesperson um, uh, and and I as I said I never say it's authentic I just kind of present the observations and people can make their own decisions but your specific question I if you can tell me what they are I can comment but I'm not directly acquainted with that work yeah. well I guess one sort of criticism that I've sort of seen creep up a couple of times with medical examinations is that one uh, that you do get differing opinions on certain phenomena and two that most of the sort of anatomical or physical examinations are um, on the basis of looking at photographs as opposed to actually being there studying the cloth itself. Um, I, I'm curious if that impacts, uh, if that would make any meaningful impact into like conclusions or studies. I don't think so. I, I mean, that's how we that's how we know about the shroud. Uh, uh, Secunda Pio took his photograph, which accidentally and incidentally enhanced blue, blue tones. And then he gets this image that that is now famous. Prior to that, I, I think the shroud was obscure. I'm not sure how many people paid attention to it. Uh, it was a moneymaker for, I guess, some people. But, you know, when he did that photograph and then people started to pay attention uh, to it. And then uh, um, Dale sent me the, the reference to Yves Delage who presented scientific observations about it, which um, uh, I don't, I try, I'm not trying to cut you short. Uh, I'll, I'll let you finish your question, then I can talk about that. Uh, no, 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 that might be a good segue into it. Um... Uh, because uh, I'm sorry, I'm not acquainted with the, the authors that you say. It, and if you can, if you can describe the argument to me, maybe I can yeah. moment. Well, um... So I believe it's part of the Sturp investigation that Buckland and um, Gil Lavoy sort of, uh, they sort of give their sort of uh, expertise from, uh, I believe Buckland was a, a medical examiner for um, LA County back in the day. Um, and he basically signs off like, look, we can tell that this person is dead. Uh, we can uh, tell that this person di uh, died in this particular way, which you've sort of uh, described, I think you described a little bit coming from a different perspective. Um, from your own medical background and such. 
Um, but they're largely making uh, these judgments off of uh, photographs of Barry Schwartz or um, some of those secondary ones. And one objection that just sort of comes up is just like, well, really to get these precise medical, um, uh, these aren't ideal circumstances to get these precise diagnosis is that we would like. That would be the general objection. Um, I, I think photographs are fine. I mean, you know, again, a friend of mine possesses a digital replica of the trout. It's precise. And I've seen that at arm's distance. It would be the same thing you would see in a photograph. And the photo negatives that uh, Pia and others have, have taken, I, I think those are, I mean, that's what we have to work with, but I don't think it detracts from the examination and, and okay. trying to extrapolate information uh, from that. And then, uh, you know, and I've been quick to say in my writing and in my book, you know, we can't say with precise certainty, Jesus mechanism of death or other information, we have to go based on a forensic reconstruction of what is uh, the truth or the case more likely than not. And I think that we can do that with reasonable certainty. Mm. I, do, I do have one thing just to jump in for a second. This is from an audience member. Um, and they, they kind of asked, they pointed to crucifixions that take place in the Philippines, right? Uh, modern day ones. So they nail through the palms, that's the wrong place. And they're mm -hmm. dried up as well. And they'll, they say, well, there's no blood flows with that. Um, so I, I know for you, you, you think the body was fully washed and therefore it's not really an issue. But I just wanted to ask you with, where, with how Jesus would have been crucified, um, could blood have flowed from the nails down the arms on that? Or would it, the nail have plugged the wound so that no blood would flow or something? Uh, blood could flow uh, from uh, the, the wound, but it would not be a copious amount of blood. Let me see if I can. I think I have a slide on that. And you can see, and the artist here has the the nail actually is down lower than what it should be as it to compare with where it's located here. It should be more up in here. But the point here is that the primary circulation of the hand is undisturbed by the placement of the nail. So there would not have been a large amount of blood uh, shed from, from the, the nail piercing, as opposed to somebody that uh, maybe wants to cut their wrist and they think they're going to be successful that way. It's usually it's not, but uh, the arterial circulation would be this way, but it would be undisturbed by the placement of the nail. But again, you know, the shroud images, if we accept that for the sake of argument, that's blood flow from puncture wounds after the body has been washed. And when you say, so if the blood flows, like once you remove the nail, then is that when more blood would flow or would it still be the same? Like I mean, one of the arguments people make is that, well, you know, if he's dead, then why is blood flowing from it? But again, it's because of the, because it can occur, the, the uh, coagulopathy and the state of the blood coagulation uh, immediate after death, uh, it may not be coagulated. And that's what we see here. You know, if you look at the images of the shroud, that's not a lot of blood. I mean, you, t you take 
go take four to six ounces of tomato juice and pour it out on a napkin and see how much how, what it looks like it, it'd be pretty big big stain what you see is you know a small amount of blood from uh, trickling on the arm uh you know in in the shroud image and a very small amount trickling from the scalp the only place you see a copious amount of discharges from the chest wound and as i described earlier the chest wound is uh, blood mixed with fluid around the chest or pleural fluid. And so that would have uh, more of a large, a large amount of, of, of fluid emanating from that. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, D Daniel, did you have any, anything else? No, I think that wraps it up for most of my questions. Uh, Sorry if I'm not answering you. No, no, <laughs> no, no, I, no, I, I really appreciate uh, getting your perspective on it. Um, and it, uh, it's very helpful. Thank you. Sure. All right. Awesome. Well, yeah, if, if uh, Daniel doesn't have any other follow-ups left, then yeah, I think we can kind of close out. Um, one thing I'll say, um, Joe, is there anything else that I have, neither of us have asked you about that you feel is really important given your expertise and your research that you think the audience should know about? Uh, no, I think we've covered it pretty pretty comprehensively. I'll answer things that you sent me emails to read. One is the uh, Yves Delage. Uh, you know, I, again, I, I don't read everybody's pet pet theory, but I, I read about him since you sent me that thing. And I thought, wow, that I really like him. You know, he, he was not a religious guy, but he said, you know, Jesus was a real person. Why, why would we think it's strange something couldn't be passed down from his time? And he was open-minded about it. And he was really on the right track because he ultimately postulated a, uh, uh, a, a, uh, a diff gas diffusion mechanism of image formation. Uh, and he thought it was a, a contact with Muranalo, which was, of course, not present on the shroud, but but he was kind of thinking in the right direction. And and, uh, and I, I think his, I don't think it is a major contribution to, well, maybe it is, it's a contribution to shroud study, but the major thing is that he, after Secundapia, he brought the Shroud of Turin into a scientific discussion and that's the historical significance of what he did. Um, and then you you sent me something about somebody did blood flow pattern studies and they took some blood. And um, it's interesting because I knew about that one because I saw it on the religion page of Fox News. Yeah. And then I read the article and I, I wrote to the author. <laughs> and I said, first, first off, you, or you know what they did? They took blood harvested for transfusion, which... Of course, that's treated so it doesn't coagulate. So we don't really know that the viscosity is is exactly what it would be like in a in a cadaver, normally speaking, or Jesus. So we can't. We don't really know. Now, what what do you think causes blood fluid to flow in a certain direction? Do you know? Imagine gravity. Like no, it's not gravity. Wrong. Pressure. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. No, it's 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 not. It was it's 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 kind of um, it's it's uh, freshman physics, freshman chemistry. It's capillary action. Okay. Uh, so it's the relative affinity, the electrical uh, kind of orientation of the molecule in the liquid, and its affinity for what's next to it. And so, the guys that are doing those blood flow things. They said, "Oh, look! You know, it flows. It just it falls off the arm. It can't. It can't possibly be, you know." And and so, the problem is, <clears throat> the blood flow is a small amount of blood. 
I think very small. And it flows on the cloth by capillary action. It's not gravity. It's capillary action. Capillary action is, <clears throat> say you take you take a glass of water, <clears throat> excuse me, and you take a napkin and you tip, put the end of the napkin in the glass of water. And what happens? The water starts to climb up the napkin, correct? Yeah. That's capillary action. You have a trace amount of blood flowing down your arm and you put a cloth on it. What makes the cloth, the blood flow where it's going to flow? It's the capillary action, the interaction between the, uh, the molecules in the blood versus the cloth and their affinity for each other. And so that blood flow article, I, I, I just couldn't really think it made much sense. I, I wrote to the uh, author of the article. Uh, he did not respond. <laughs> of course, he, he's well known, and he, he's a shroud skeptic. Uh, oh, is he? I don't know who he is. I, I yeah. just saw it. I thought, wait, no. <laughs> just, just for the, we're talking about Luigi Garlicelli's 2018 blood pattern analysis. Uh, um, yeah, study. So, so I mean, yeah, I don't. It, I, if it weren't about such a sensational topic, I can't imagine how it would be published. Yeah, for sure. It's really bad. I, I think it's pretty obvious. And that, that's the way a lot of shroud literature is. That's that's yeah. why I even talk about it at all. Uh, you know, now I have lectured on the shroud to audiences, and it's particularly in Catholic churches, and the amount of reverence they that they have for the for the shroud and how they venerate it. I, it's it's very humbling. I am very careful to be very respectful in my discussion of it. Um, you know, and it's, it's not so much among, uh, Protestant Christians, but, uh, you know, you have to respect the way people think about it. And, and I do. And so, uh, so I, I would stop short of saying, oh yes, I know for sure it's authentic. I, that's not a statement I would make, or I don't think the science, that's not a scientific statement, but that someone could come to that subjective conclusion is something that I think is is logically mediated and not something that I would fault. Well, that uh, you thought you were going to get away with it. No, I just remember you made a promise at the oh, of the, of the yeah. show. You, you waited for it. <laughs> you, you, you waited for it. Very so, so here it comes. The Shroud of Turin was not manufactured in Jerusalem, at least based on... Uh, 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 textile archaeologic finds uh, of the period. And the reason we know that is that the herringbone pattern of weave is not something that the Jews did. So where where did it come from? Uh, first off, you know, we should ba I, I should backstep and say, what about you know? I never really talked about the age of the shroud. And it has not been formally aged. It, it, formally, uh, the age has not been scientifically stated. I think probably your listeners know that the carbon dating uh, test in 1988 was flawed uh, due to a uh, sampling error. They they cut a swatch of cloth the size of your of your small finger and cut it into three slips and sent it off to the uh, to the lab. Not the lab's not in question, but it's a sampling problem where there were. Uh, cotton fibers mixed with linen fibers, and in uh, in Jewish law, you didn't mix fibers when you were weaving uh, 
when you were weaving uh, cloth. Uh, I want to say that's Leviticus 19, if I got that right. Um, and so that they would carry that over into to shroud production. So to find cotton mixed with linen, uh, it would be inconsistent with Jewish customs. So it would really represent a repair um, because the shroud had been extensively handled through time. Um, and if you look at linen uh, under a microscope and cotton under a microscope, they look drastically different. Linen fibers look kind of like bamboo with kind of you know, growth nodes progressing through the fiber, whereas a cotton fiber looks like a spiral piece of tape. So it's it's unmistakable. Um, so so that's that's a sampling error. So we have to, I, I think, serious students of the shroud understand that that's that's flawed. So how, what can we say about the date of the shroud? Well, there there was there was a recent. A study of X-ray refraction of, of the shroud fibers that found it to be consistent with, uh, and we're talking about X-ray refraction, and that it was consistent with fibers found from Masada, which was uh, decimated in AD 74, but not like uh, linen fibers from uh, more recent times. And my friend Barry Schwartz will be quick to say, well, that's not a dating mechanism. That's We don't date things that way. Nobody believes that. Nobody accepts that. I get that. I understand that. But I don't think, well, maybe the authors wanted to say that, but I wouldn't say that. But I, it is a piece of physical evidence that has some relevance in an academic context. And then the way Ray Rogers did uh, the dating uh, was by looking at uh, the... Uh, concentration of lignin at the growth nodes in the uh, uh, cellulose or the the shroud the flax fibers in the shroud now lignin is at the growth nodes and what is present in the lignin is something you've all eaten vanillin because it's a component of vanilla it's a, it's a component of artificial vanilla flavor in fact i read somewhere that 40% uh, of commercial grade vanillin is harvested from flax uh, fibers. So we, we all eat that. And, but over time, very, very slowly, the vanillin will uh, evolve from the lignin in the growth nodes and decrease in concentration. And when you do the test for that on the Shroud of Turin, it's not detectable. So that's a chemical reaction that takes a really, really long time to occur because it was detectable on the Holland cloth that was sewn to the shroud in 1534. So Ray Rogers, being the brilliant chemist and mathematician that he was, was able to understand it because you, by the in chemistry, people understand that you, you a chemical the rate of a chemical reaction can be known. And so it can be calculated when the vanillin would be evolved from the growth nodes of the fibers and undetectable. It can be calculated. Uh, the problem is we don't know all the variables. We don't know the temperature history of the shroud through history. So that leaves us squarely in a range of time. And I think if I, if I uh, remember Rogers, I think he uh, stated that the shroud of Turin the, again, the chemical 
characteristics of the shroud, specifically the absence of detectable vanillin at the lignin growth nodes of the fibers, are consistent with dating of the shroud between 1,200 and 3,000 years old. It's consistent with, you know, uh, linen found in, uh, in ancient Egypt that's thousands of years old. But it's not consistent with more recently manufactured uh, linen. So, you know, we have empiric evidence to suggest that the shroud could maybe date to the time of Christ. At a minimum, it's really old. It's not medieval. It's older than that. Okay, so let's go back to the first century. Uh, they didn't, the Jews did not make herringbone weave. They didn't. Now, weaving was something that was part, every household did weaving, even aristocratic households, because it was extremely labor-intensive. It was done by hand. It would take several people a month to weave a Roman toga. So to buy a ready-made cloth the size of the Shroud of Turin would be outlandishly expensive. <clears throat> and Barry Schwartz says he believes that uh, Joseph Arimathea had it in his possession already. And and I did some looking at that, and, and there are some renderings of some, I'm not a student of ancient language, but some of the translations can be rendered that way, that it was a cloth that he had, rather than uh, when we read the Gospels, a lot of it's translated, he went out and bought a cloth. Well, you know, there was no Walmart there. You know, I mean, if, and it would be really tough to get a ready-made cloth, uh, particularly from something like what he possessed, which would be a really expensive cloth, uh, to get that. I'm sure somebody sold them somewhere, but it would be expensive. But Barry thinks he already had it in his possession. I think that's at least part of the discussion that that could could reasonably be the case based on some renderings of the translation. So the herringbone pattern, you know, who used the herringbone pattern for anything? The Romans. That's how they set the bricks in their highways. They somehow understood that it was more resilient or it held up under tension. The floor of the uh, the, uh, tra the market, or tra the Trajan's market, is that what it's called? It, was a, it dates to the first century. The, the floor of that mall, I'm going to call it a shopping Tra mall. Trajan's Forum, I think, is, yeah. What's that? Trajan's Forum. There's yeah, it was a shopping mall, basically. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it, it, the brick patterns were in uh, herringbone. And I did come across a reference of a, a piece of linen that was found in a, uh, in a tomb in the UK in the first century that had a herringbone pattern. Uh, so herringbone weave did exist in that time. It, but it didn't exist in Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish expatriate population in Rome was big. Some say up to 10% of the population. And it, they're specifically mentioned in Acts chapter 2, for example, Jews from all over the world, and then they start naming places and Rome. They specifically name Rome. So, you know, it seems the best explanation, I think, of course, we can't know for sure, 
uh, I've searched for and can't find a period cloth exactly like the shroud, but the herringbone pattern is really strange. It's not Jewish. And it's the largest, I think, expatriate population that time would be in Rome. And I think it was a Roman import. And I think it was part of Joseph's end of life planning that he had this really expensive imported cloth along with his newly cut tomb. And, you know, that's one of the prophecies, it's Isaiah 59, I'm not sure, but where he was, he's buried with among the wealthy. And uh, I think that that could be consistent with that messianic prophecy. So I think the Shroud of Turin came from Rome. I can't give you an address, but that's where I think it came from. Interesting, interesting. All right, awesome. Yeah, well, thank you so much for revealing that at the end for, for me and the audience. I think that was that's interesting as well. Um, and I'm wondering how it will relate to other studies. Like I know I had Giulio Fonti on the show and he, he was talking about, well, there's DNA uh, DNA studies that showed came from India or, or was manufactured in India or something. I, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's just interesting to see. Uh, I have not, but but I I oh you mean that the the linen fibers itself DNA can be placed in India? Yeah, yeah. Is, that, is that what I, you're I would have concern. Well, I don't know I, because I'm not a textile person and and don't it's not something I've studied more than just what I've just told you. Um, but linen was used everywhere. The fact that linen comprises the the fibers of the cloth means nothing by itself if and it's so old and been handled so much can the dna be considered reliable i just don't know the answer to that go ahead daniel i saw that i I was i was gonna say i think if you're referencing the study that i'm thinking of it was looking at um uh human dna that was found in the shroud and it found the largest concentrations in um, yeah, that was northern, uh, sort of Syria, Palestine area, uh, Western Europe, and then there was this third large cluster, uh, that was centered around the Indian subcontinent. And, uh, one of the hypotheses that one of the authors sort of flirted with, he didn't say this was ex- this was the case, but he sort of said that perhaps the cloth was originally manufactured in India, um, because that way we could sort of, uh, get that to work with our known history and our proposed history of the shroud um, uh, being in Jerusalem and then working its way to Europe. Otherwise, it's just this weird sort of uh, anomaly. I, I don't know. That's that's a peculiar, I, I have not heard of that. That's I can just make some general comments. Uh, I, I the, the shroud has been handled by so many people all over the place all the time that it wouldn't be inconceivable that somebody from India was handling it somewhere. Yeah, I, I don't know what do we really make of that. And, and just in terms of you know medical anthropology, when we start looking at races and how we define races, though, though that's kind of based on uh, anthropomorphic features. Whereas you know, my wife is from India, so you know Northern Indians are Aryans. Did you know that? Uh, Southern Indians are Dravidians. They're different races. So if uh, the Aryan race extends across uh, the Mediterranean, could you reasonably differentiate a Northern Indian's DNA from someone from the south of France? I just don't know the answer to that. Maybe you could. But in terms of 
of racial identification, they would look similar. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know. But I mean, the, the bigger problem is it's just too old. It's just been handled by too many people to try to to use DNA that you find on it to say anything is problematic. Gotcha. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, I think that says it all. I think we can wrap up now. So I just want to say thank you guys so much. Thank you, Dr. Joe Bergeron, for being on. You were a great guest. I, I love the information that you gave. Very detailed, very helpful. Um, and that's not all for the audience. He's provided me with various uh, papers and links and stuff. So if you want to do further research, please click on those. Um, I, I hope you had a good time on your end there, Joe. Yeah, it was a pleasure being, I, I like talking to smart young people. So thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You're, you're welcome. That's why I brought Daniel, because I didn't want you to be <laughs> young me. But, um, uh, you look young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, and, I'm probably older than both of you put together. So there you go. And <laughs> and thank you, Daniel, as well, for, for always being willing to help me out as a co-host. You did a great job. So yeah, thanks for having me on again. It was great just to hear uh, such amazing uh, scholarship uh, from Dr. Bergeron. So awesome. Awesome. All thank right. You. Cool. So yeah, with that said, just so the audience knows what I have coming up next week. So not one, but two shows. Um, and again, they're specifically focused on the Shroud of Turin. This is my Shroud month, I guess, um, for shows. So I have um, Bob Rucker and Hugh Ferry coming on to do my Shroud solo show panel review from episodes one and two. Um, and then on the, so that's going to be recorded on the 27th, Thursday. I'll probably have it up for you guys on Friday or something. Uh, and then on Saturday, uh, Daniel's going to be joining me again as a co-host um, because we're bringing on board Barry Schwartz, who's going to be doing his master's presentation on the various image forming mechanisms, or specifically the artistic ones, why they don't work, why they fail. Uh, so yeah, you, you've got uh, two shows to look forward to on the Shroud of Turin next week. So with that said... Barry, Barry knows everything, so you can... You can uh, talk to him about that in detail. He is the the omniscient uh, Shroud scholar, isn't he? So <laughs> yeah, please give him my regards. I will for sure. All right, cool. Well, have a great week, and I will click the button.